everyone, and welcome to another episode of Movie Mumble, your monthly movie discussion podcast where four friends get together and talk about movies. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar, every month one of us picks a film, we watch it, and then we talk about it, and that's basically the formula. There are no rules about the films we pick. They can be new or old, foreign or domestic, animated or live action, a film we've seen before or never seen. And at the, at the end, we announce what we're watching next month, so you can watch along with us if you'd like. We also spoil everything we watch, so if you're worried about that sort of thing, watch a movie before you listen to its episode. This month, Tim was our movie selector, and Tim brought us Atonement, the 2007 adaptation of the Ian McEwan novel of the same name. I'm your host, Scott Murray. I forgot to do the introductions. Whoops. I... Uh, <laughs> Losing my mind. Tim Listener is like, selector. who's Tim? Yeah. <laughs> Tim's our movie selector. He's also a man who found an excuse to buy too many typewriters because now they count as musical instruments, don't they? <laughs> they <laughs> always also... have and they always will. <laughs> We've also got Joel Lewis. Hello. Anzi Perez. Hello. And our special guest, Tina. Special guest. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hi, Tyler. Thank you for joining us. We're very glad to have you here today. So uh, back to uh, the part I skipped ahead to, Tim, as our film selector, if you'd <laughs> like to introduce us to the film a bit, uh, why you picked it, how you first encountered it, and, yeah, why you brought it to the podcast. So, so yeah, Atonement, it's, a, it's about um, this young girl who likes to write stories, li- likes to write plays. She sees an interaction between her sister and the son of i think i think it's the son of their housekeeper i think he also kind of you know works on their in their their in their house too um and he sees basically the two of them by a fountain and he she she sees him yell at her sister and then she takes her clothes off except for her slip jumps into the fountain and comes out standing there kind of dripping wet and then storms off angrily and, you know, kind of gets this impression like, uh, you know, and, and we kind of find out later, I think that the, you know, she also has a crush on the, on this, this guy. Um, so, so her name's Bryony, uh, Robbie is the boy and, uh, C or Cecilia is the, um, Kira Knightley's character, her older sister. Um, so after seeing this interaction, I think it kind of paints, you know, uh, her impression of Robbie a little bit differently. Like, oh, I kind of had a crush on him. I think he's a nice guy, but why is he yelling at my sister? Why is she like taking off her clothes and standing there awkwardly after jumping in a fountain, like what's going on. Um, and we sort of see that scene from the actual perspective. And the reason he yelled at her was because there was a, um, a vase that was broken and she was about to walk forward and could have stepped on the broken pieces and he needed to stop her. And when the vase broke and fell in, there was a piece she had to retrieve from the fountain and they were in the middle of this kind of awkward argument also. So as events go on, there are other other things that happen that lead Bryony, the younger sister, to think that Robbie's, you know, actually a sex maniac and, you know, not what she thought he was. And then later that night, while her cousin Lola um, gets, you know, assaulted, gets raped by someone and doesn't know who it is, but Bryony kind of assumes that it's Robbie who does it because she's already had it in her head that, oh, he's not what she thinks he is. You know, he's a sex maniac and he ends up going to jail for it. Um, and at the time we don't know who it might be. They kind of plant seeds that maybe it's this other hand that works on, on at the house. Cause he talked about how, Oh, I went to my dad's house, you know, and this and that, and he doesn't really have a strong alibi. So they kind of lead you to think it might be him. And then later in the film, it cuts ahead. And after he's gone to prison, they give him the deal that, Oh, you can get out of prison. If you go to war, cause this is around, you know, this is, it's, it is world war one, right? 
Okay. It is two. Okay. For some reason I thought it was one. Oh, that's right. Cause it is the forties, right? Okay. I'm, I'm bad with history, but obviously it didn't affect my viewing of the film. It, it worked. It was, it was, a, it was a world war. We were fighting Germans. So I was like, ah, you know, 50, 50 chance here. So he goes to war and through the, the second half of the film, there's this whole idea of him wanting to, you know, put in his time at the war so he can get back to Cecilia. We see a scene where, um, Oh, I forgot one of the important scenes. Another reason why Bryony thinks he's a sex maniac is there's actually been this sort of tension brewing between Cecilia and Robbie, and it kind of comes to a head in the library where they end up having sex, but Bryony catches them. And kind of, I think a lot of it has to do with the way they're positioned and kind of what she's already starting to think about him. She assumes that Robbie attacked Cecilia, and that's kind of, you know, what her impression of that scene is. Um, I almost, you know, I also wonder how much of that is also fueled by the fact that she's had a crush on him and now she's kind of angry that he had, he's interested in her sister, um, which again, we don't really find that out till later. You get a, you know, inkling of it. We find out that before Robbie goes off to war, him and Cecilia meet one, one more time and they kind of, you know, there's this hopeful moment of, okay, like, you know, I'm going to do my time in the war and then I'm going to come back and, you know, and, and she tells him of, oh, there's this 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 cottage by a lake that we can stay in when you're away from, you know, when you're on leave and, you know, they're kind of making these plans to have this sort of long, long distance, like, oh, while you're away at the war, whatever, but when you come back, we can be together. And skips ahead to Bryony getting being a little bit older and she's kind of realizing what she did that, you know, you know, she was telling everyone that she saw Robbie with her own eyes, you know, raping her cousin. But in, in the scene, you know, she, she doesn't actually see who it is. You know, it's actually, they were having a fancy dinner and all the men there are wearing tuxes. So there's a person with a tux whose face we don't see, but, you know, we don't know who it actually is. And I think she's starting to come to the realization that, yeah, maybe my, my, you know, my thoughts and feelings had clouded my judgment. And I, you know, I assumed it was Robbie, um, you know, and she kind of realizes her mistake and wants to set it right. And she's trying to get in touch with her sister, Cecilia, but Cecilia is like, no, I want nothing to do with you because, you know, my, the person I love had to go away to prison and then war because you made up a story, be, you know, and I think a lot of it ties into the idea of her, you know, oh, she's a storyteller. So, you know, I think she, you know, she put this plot together in her head, like all these little moments that she saw that that created a na- narrative that made sense in her mind. And that's why she was sure it was Robbie who who did it. Um, so as Bryony's older and she's starting to realize this. She sees um, footage of uh, her older brother's friend, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and he's now set to marry her cousin, Lola. And she kind of has this, this flashback and this realization of, you know, the time when she, she found her cousin and realizes it was actually him who was raping her. And that like, oh, like, uh, you know, I, it was not only wasn't it Robbie, but now I, I remember who it actually was. And so she wants to make amends, but it's it's kind of too late. Like he's already in the army here. He's already stuck. And, and there's there's a scene where Bryony goes back to talk to um, Cecilia and Robbie living in this little apartment. And she wants to make amends. But, you know, they're kind of both like you can try to make amends. But but, you know, we're still we're still pissed at you. Like you still fucked everything up. There's a, a, a great scene. I'll, uh, Scott, I'll let you talk more about this later because I feel like as, as far as the, the Dunkirk scene, um, but there's a scene of like, you know, they're trying to get back after the war. And uh, we also see that Robbie has a, a wound 
that um, is uh, not looking too good. And we see him kind of progressively getting worse, but then there's there, you know, they're on the beach. There's a chance he might be able to get home. And at the end of the film, again, we're going to spoil it. It cuts to the future. And we see an older Bryony who's doing an interview about her 21st book that she read. And she's, you know, this is going to be her last book because she's dying. And she wrote the book as a way of, you know, as as atonement for what she did when she was a child and it took kind of her whole life to write this book but she also admits in the book that she never actually went to go see her sister that day and that Robbie and her sister and Cecilia never actually got together that all of the kind of little I, I, as far as I know I think the scene of them meeting before Robbie went off to war I think that maybe still happened but we're still also not clear because we find out that this whole story is being told from Bryony's perspective. Um, so yeah, so Robbie ends up dying, her sister ends up dying, and this was kind of her way of trying to give them a happy ending by by weaving in these fictional aspects of this story so that, okay, it was terrible in the middle, but they did get together. When in actuality, like, no, they both just died during the war, and all they had were, was this, you know, this one moment in the library, and then you know, and like I said, maybe this moment in a tea shop where they met for tea before Robbie leaves, but it's not, it's not clear whether or not that actually happened, you know, because once we're thinking about it from Bryony's perspective, it's like, oh, this whole story is written by her. Did that actually happen? Or is that something she created as a, a midway point to kind of get to the end? Um, and it, you know, and it ends with a scene of the two of them kind of on the beach and then going into this, this cottage on the lake where, um, you know, when she mentions that to him, she gives him a postcard of her friend's cottage that they can stay in. So, you know, again, they're given this fictional happy ending of, okay, they, they had to go through all this shit, but they end up together and everything's great. And they're in this nice little cottage, but you, yeah, you find out that all of those tiny good moments never actually happened. Um, yeah. And that's atonement. Um, <laughs> sorry. And you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> and this, this, so this, this film first came to me, um, in one of my Berkeley classes, my film score analysis class, where we were given the choice at the beginning of the semester. And I think I've said this before, so I'll try to say it quickly, but we could either for our final project, we had to do a full analysis of either empire strikes back atonement or B movie. And I was like, well, of course I'm going to pick empire strikes back. But as the class went on and I saw the the level of detail that we were, so this wasn't like, oh, analyze the you know the 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 main theme of star wars analyze the force theme analyze you know um uh, imperial march whatever no this was like every second of music had to be accounted for throughout the entire film and you know knowing first you know the length of the film the amount of the film that is covered in music uh the uh, you know the the degree of orchestration of all of that music and how much music is buried under sound effects you know that we have to sort of figure out by ear and that's a, that was a rude awakening for this class in general, I'll say, is that I've done analysis before in my other music classes. But usually, you know, if you're doing an analysis of Beethoven, you can find a Beethoven score anywhere and you can look at the sheet music, see what all the notes are, make notes of what all the chords are, whatever. With, with film music, you can't. Like film music is very, very rarely published so that you can buy a score. However, I do have the complete matrix score, but it costs me like $100. And that's only like a handful of scores available on this one website. So in order to analyze the music, like you have to do most of it by ear, which is hard to do when there is, you know, explosions and, and fighting and this, that, and the other thing going on. Um, it also made me realize too, um, you know, as much of the music people remember from star Wars, there's a ton that you like 
don't really remember because it's kind of incidental just behind everything. Like, like when they're, you know, when Han Solo's like walking around the, the station on Hoth and he's talking to Chewie, who's fixing the Millennium Falcon, you know, can any of you remember what that music sounds like? Probably not, but no, I was going to have to figure all that out by ear and analyze the shit out of it, you know? And I was like, you know what? Like, I cannot do this. If I try to do this, I'm going to fail this class. So I um, I was kind of going back and forth and I didn't want to do B-movie either because I didn't want to have to listen to Jerry Seinfeld's voice that much. So I saw it once, once is enough. Um, <laughs> sorry, Joel. So in one of our other classes, uh, I'm not our professor was talking... B-movie. <laughs> okay, good. You like um... jazz? <laughs> <laughs> I will defend that meme, but that's about it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so we're on the same page. But uh, so one of my other classes, you know, my professor was talking about how, you know, with different films, there's different levels of integration with the music and, you know, and the other sounds in the film. And sometimes if you have like a, a you know, music or a sound editor who's working with the composer early enough on, there are certain decisions that can be made in the filming and the editing where the music is going to kind of match up with things more so than just like, okay, here's the, 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 you know, the locked cut of the film. Now you just layer music on top of it. And the example that she gave was the opening to atonement. And right off the bat, I was in love because, okay, here's this girl typing. And then the score comes in and a, the, a typewriter is being used as a percussion instrument. So I was just like, yep, this is what I'm doing. And then as she kind of storms off, you know, the music is kind of trudging along under, you know, under the tempo that she's walking at. And one downbeat in the music, you know, she walks by a bedroom and the the woman who ends up being Robbie's mother is like changing the sheets on a bed and she like fluffs the sheet, which makes this sort of sound like right on the downbeat of the music. And I'm like, oh my God, like and it, and right off the bat, and it, it doesn't end up being that much like this, but I thought it was going to be like a musical, you know, because it had this sense of like that fantasy level where you know, the, the, the characters are, are taking part in the music and the, their actions are creating sounds that are part of the music. It didn't end up being that deep, which is probably a good idea. It probably would have been a completely different experience, but just the way, yeah, the music had kind of incorporated elements from the, 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 you know, diegetic sounds from the film um, just in that one scene I was and and also getting to hear it and how interesting melodically the theme was, but that the orchestration was relatively thin. So kind of looking at it from a pragmatic point of view, I'm like, oh, it sounds like it's strings and piano as opposed to full goddamn orchestra, which don't get me wrong. I love full goddamn orchestra, but not if I have to analyze it by ear and figure out what every fucking instrument is doing across the page. So so that was kind of what made me say, okay, this is the film I'm going to do. So I, you know, I, I bought it on iTunes. I, you know, I was like, okay, I've got all the stuff. I ended up, luckily, I was able to find uh, piano sheet music online that I also purchased uh, I found the soundtrack, which I also purchased, which helped out because if, as I was watching the film, you know, I could kind of watch a scene and go, okay, this music playing, go to the soundtrack and find that track on the soundtrack. So I could actually listen to that instead of listening to it underneath all the dialogue and sound effects. So that was also really helpful. Um, yeah. Having the sheet music to be able to, for a bunch of it go, oh, this is what's being played. I can just copy that into my notation software instead of having to listen to it by ear. Um, so that was super helpful. So that was, that was kind of how I found this film. And also the fact that um, I, I was very happy about the way our, our, this project also had to be handed in because I feel like most times when you have a big final project, it's like, you're still getting regular ass assignments every week. And then fuck you. You've also got to do this giant assignment in the very last week of class. 
this was broken up into six parts that were our final six assignments week to week. So we had a normal amount of work in those six. Well, I say normal. One of the first assignment was go through the whole film and spot the film. And in order, in other words, say every time the music stops, starts what the music is doing and then what's happening in the film that triggers the music to happen and start. And, you know, so just doing that took like hours and hours and hours, but anyway, it was much better than having to do all that in the very last week on our own while we were already doing other assignments. So knowing that I kind of had to do that, you know, I had to, you know, take those shortcuts, but because of that, I ended up watching the film at least six times throughout those six weeks, because every time it was like, okay, now go back and do this. So I'm going through the film again, you know, adding more layers of detail to all the music I had to analyze and, and why it's happening and what's it, what it's doing and how it's connecting to other themes, you know, before and after and everything. Um, and by the end of it, like, I, I don't want to say it's one of my favorite films because it, it does hurt to watch this film. You know, it's definitely not like, oh, I have good feelings, but, but I mean, I, I, I did definitely grew to love it the more I watched it and the, the, the brilliance of every aspect of it. I mean, obviously the music, but also even just every aspect of the film itself was just, was brilliant, you know, like, you know, brilliantly written, brilliantly, you know, shot, brilliantly acted like every part of it. So, so yeah, that's why, you know, and, and, you know, once I was done and had to got to put it away for a while, there was definitely still this idea of like, all this information is just kind of sitting in my head. And it was like, oh, I know I'll bring it to movie mumble so I can kind of vomit all of this music information that I learned onto those guys. And, you know, and I say guys, cause at the time I didn't know you were going to be a special guest Tyler, but you know, onto, to everyone and, and be like, here, here's all the crap I learned that, you know, you may or may not be interested in. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to dial it back because I think there's enough time in between where a lot of it's not fresh in my mind. So it's not like I need to tell you everything I learned, but um, and that's also why I, I kind of set up that sort of special request of what was your favorite music moment? You know, I want to see to someone who hasn't had to watch this film six times over the six times over the course of six weeks and be paying such close attention to the music. What are moments that actually jumped out to someone who's kind of like a casual viewer of this and how much of an effect the music had um, on that level? So. So, yeah. So and it was it was also nice. I hadn't seen it since then. Um, it was nice to kind of watch it again recently and just watch the film and not have, you know, and I mean, I was aware of the music, but it was nice to not have to be like, I need to be actively analyzing this and everything. And oh, another funny little, little part of this too, is I remember when I was um, a, a while ago on Instagram, I follow great British baking show and James McAvoy was on it. What they do? I think the stand up to cancer special things where they have celebrities come on and for some reason, those don't end up on Netflix, like a lot of the other stuff does, but those don't. And I remember being like, I, I need to see that episode. I need to know James McAvoy is okay. Like I, I need to, you know, it's like, I can't like, you know, the, like the image of him just like, you know, at, on, on Dunkirk, just like, you know, when she's like, oh, he died of septicemia and just kind of seeing him with the postcard, like, like I needed to get that image out of my head. I need to see real life James McAvoy baking a bunch of cakes and shit, you know, and I still haven't had that. So um, if anyone knows where I can view those, please let me know so I can kind of put that to rest. So, so yeah, so that's, that's me and atonement. Well, thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I, I want to take a moment here to sort of look at Tyna because usually when we have a special guest, the guest is bringing the film for us. But in this case, you heard Tim was picking atonement and wanted in on the otherwise normal episode. Uh, so usually we hear we would move on to going around the circle for first impressions of the film slash current impressions of this watch through. But 
uh, if you'd like to start us off, Tina, that'd be great. But also, if you want to say anything about why you were so interested in atonement, you know, to begin with, that please go ahead. Yeah. So um, I came to atonement a long time ago. So I don't remember if I saw it in the theater, but I remember learning about it because I don't know if it was when it first got recommended for an Oscar or it was like something I'd been interested in. It came into my life in a very like important, formative girl emotion time um, back in the, when I was in high school. Um, And it is a movie that has broken me over and over and over again in like the best possible way. And so what's really funny is it is a movie that like, I know will make me cry in like a good and bad way. And so, and I've read the book, same thing, you get to the end and it's just like comes pouring out because you have all of this hope. And like, she, like Brian even says it in the movie. It's like, you I wanted to give the readers hope because like nobody's going to read a story where like they don't get together and like I wanted to give them something they couldn't have in life and that's kinder and it's like it's such an it was always such an interesting like philosophical question about like where does that become kinder and where does that become rule and so it's just it was always a really interesting movie for me and so like and I had never watched it with Joel who for the audience, um, Joel is my partner. I am the girlfriend or partner. I'm more important than no girlfriend, but like, so I never watched it with him. And during COVID, I was like, hey, like, we've never watched this. You want to watch it? Was that too? I thought, I thought we watched it way, way back. Was it just COVID? It was in the apartment you are sitting in right now. Okay. Then, damn. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was like, and I turned into a broken mess sobbing on the floor because that's what like that last five, 10 minutes does to me. And Joel was like, I've never seen you be this broken. What is wrong? What it can I do? It was a noise you made I've never heard before. It was terrifying. Just a mournful, wounded animal noise of crying. It was it was brutal. And it is legitimately one of my favorite movies. So I don't know what that says about me as a human, but it was so I like when I heard and I was so excited when Tim, I heard Tim was doing it for like his project because that is the thing that pulled me in. Like, yes, I love Karen Knightley. Like, yes, I love me a period drama. Yes, I love a romance. But I have this weird obsession with interestingly integrated, like, credits. So, like, any movie, like, Easy A is a great example where it's, like, integrated or in... What's that movie where he'd take, like, a pill and he was, like, super, super smart and he could see whatever that movie was. Limitless? Limitless. The one where he was limitless? (laughs) Integrate and so I (laughs) murder because then you become addicted physical anyway. Um, so limitless, like, and how those things are integrated. And I also really love clever, like, I just like things that are clever. And the sound in this with her typewriter and the walking and the cadence, and later on, so I'm just jumping right into my favorite musical moments. And it's like it all is the interaction and kind of it's not fourth wall breaking, I'm sure there's a term for it, but it's where it's completely. Like, you don't know that it's coming from within the scene, but it is both related and drives and is like, it ties back to something in at least part of the scene. And so that happens later with some piano music that you'd think is just a a mournful or like a peaceful piano song playing underneath. And then it's like, oh, and she's playing it. So I just, I, I eat that shit up. And so that's why I was really obsessed and so glad that, um, and it won, it won best original score 
for a reason. I oftentimes find that to be really a really distressing Oscar win. Um, and it it won and it deserved every time. And like it deserved his time to shine. So I'll stop rambling. No, oh, that was good. Thank you. Thank you. Joel or Zeke, do you want to go or should I jump in? Actually, at least. If, if I had to say, I because Zeke yeah. is the only one who hadn't seen this before, right? That's right. I kind of yeah. want to hear like, you know, I mean, I know obviously I kind of, you know, spewed, you know, all this stuff, but like, yeah, like I kind of want to hear, you know, from the perspective of like, yeah. oh, going into, especially after last time when I was like, you know, oh yeah, you know, you know, Keely from, from Ted Lasso's in it. And he's like, oh, I like her. I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of, I kind of want to hear Zico first and, you know, get to have that like fresh perspective, you know, and before we kind of talk about everything and give him nothing left to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. Zeke. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for the queue up uh, and get ready for nothing but glowing reviews uh, because holy shit, that was, that was great. Um, yeah. I think honestly, you know, one of the best movies I watched in a while, I think it stuck out to me for a number of different reasons. It's just super original. I don't know. So I'm, I'm going to dive into some things that I really liked about it, but I think it was unexpected for me in all the best ways. I think it's a movie that 2007 Zeke wouldn't have really liked. Um, not I'm, I'm hit or miss on, on period pieces. I'll say that. And so like, I'm getting better at it. I'm finding more that I like. I think a lot of the times when I see a trailer for a period piece, it's like, okay, here we go with some like British royalty and they're very rich and let's worry about their problems for two hours. Like, you know, it, it, not always like, hooked on just the trailer or just the idea of a period piece. That being said, you know, I found more that I like. And I think what I liked about this one, like even starting in, I was like, okay, well, here's another period piece, but it's all very compelling. Like, you know, we get some some interesting dynamics between the characters, really well acted, all that fun stuff. And then and then the tone just changes absolutely drastically. Right? I am thinking of this kind of as like three different movies with how it's broken out. And not to say that if it was like, I feel like if this was a period piece all the way through, I would have really liked that. But I think the fact that it was a period piece to start and that hooked me because it's so well done. And then it like curves into a war, you know, story, war, history, war, drama. And then that hooked me and then that carried me through. And then you get the twist at the end um, and you get, you know, older Briny writing a book and kind of revisiting everything and just the way that interview was shot. Um, I think just the combo of those three different chunks I, I loved all of that. I think I loved how it played with um, time and perspective, even early on. Uh, you know, you get Briny's perspective of things, and then it kind of like steps back and is like, okay, we're going to walk through the same series of events, but from Robbie's or from Cecilia's perspective. And I thought that hooked me too. I thought that made those um, twists and, and hooks that much more um, dramatic or more suspenseful. So I don't know. I, I really liked how it was paced out. I really liked how, again, it felt like three different movies and three different really unique, really fun movies. And you put it together and that's a whole new original thing. Um, right. Because I've seen period pieces before and I've seen war movies before and I've seen like biopics before, but like to merge them all together in the way that it did with the pace that it did, with the acting that it did, with the time that it did, with the score that it did. I, I to me, that made it really original and something I enjoyed. You know, I'm excited to dig into kind of the uh, the ending. I really like kind of how you put that about, is that cruel or is that kind to the viewer? Um, 
you know, and, and Briny's kind of writing for herself and writing that story to give them their moment of, moment of happiness when in reality, that's not what it was. Yeah, I, uh, I'm going to save that one for later. Give a little hint now. I liked how it made... No, I'm going to save it for later. You can edit that out. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think just the violent shifts in tone and uh, I'm just I'm trying to decide what to go into now and what not to go into. Leave it there. I think it was a really unique first viewing experience for me. It's not something I would have enjoyed as much before, not something I would have sought out before, but the fact that I saw it now um, worked out really well. Cinematography was beautiful. Score was beautiful. Acting was great. Um, yeah, that's my first impression. Can I just call out the fact that you were like, yeah, three really fun movies. And I'm like, one of those movies is literally dead men on the beach. We're done. <laughs> Fair, so I yeah, just need but... you to, I just need you to be <laughs> aware of what you We'll need to run the tape because I don't remember fun or if I said fun, I don't mean it as the three unique crap. movies. Yeah. Three different movies. Um, not fun at all. None of it. Zero fun, sir. No fun was had by y'all. <laughs> no fun at all. First part felt kind of jolly. Like the very, like 10 jolly. minutes felt jolly. It's like, oh, we're having a good time. Everyone's here. This man makes chocolate. And then the chocolate man is an asshole. And so <laughs> you, it gets not fun real quick. I Again, I really liked how violently that shifted. It kind of sucked me in even more to be like, okay, we're not just dealing with rich you know, British problems now, like this is some serious shit. So not fun, but great. Thank you. Yeah. I'll jump in here. If you don't mind, Joel, it is very much three separate pieces. Like you said, Zeke. And it's funny because I remember I saw this when it came out, I was like 14, actually 13, roughly Brian's age. And I, I remember the trailers sold it. They gave you the whole setup in the trailer to pitch the movie as a, like a wartime romance of like him in Europe and her at home and separated by the war in the ocean and trying to get back to each other. So when it turns out that that's, that stretches like a, less than a third of the film, right? That was, that was a different experience to come into the theater and see what it really was. Um, and I was maybe just still just a year or so too young for this when it came by. A, I had to keep asking mom what a lot of the fancy British words meant. It would be, I didn't pick up on a lot of the subtext that was going on. Like, you know, you mentioned Tim, the Benedict Cumberbatch's character, the chocolate guy. He, there are two scenes where they totally telegraph that he's a thousand percent right before the rape even happens, right? That is him. And I picked up on that now. I did not pick up on that at the time. At the time, I was as confused as everyone else about, like, oh, well, we didn't see who it was. Like, who was it really? You know, because I, I got the misunderstanding bit. I knew it wasn't Robbie, but it didn't put it together. So at the end, when she remembers that it was him, it was like, oh. And and there was this weird mix of like, you couldn't remember that at the time. I was like annoyed at her, right? But also, you know, people forget things. But anyway, I watched it. It was great. The music stuck with me. Absolutely stuck with me. And I was thinking now that if I want to play something I hear in a movie, you can Google it and you can find a bunch of like, okay transcriptions that are free right they might not be perfect but they're on the internet but in 2007 i you couldn't that was it so i just i liked this music and i wasn't gonna find sheet music and that was the end of that story so i never played it uh so that that was a nice realization but yeah it's just at the time it struck me as this really well intertwined narrative that went from confusing to clear in a really beautiful and 
simple way. Um, I loved the way it juggled all its parts. It was shot beautifully. The, the music, like I said, really hit me and stuck with me. And then now that I'm coming back to it as an adult, it's even better. All the parts I didn't pick up on before, I can look at and go, oh, these are also great. So, so first impression was good, but incomplete. And second first impression was even better. Yeah. Did you did you get the sheet music that I sent to you? Uh, you yes, I saw that. Okay, good. Yeah, thank you. I'll be making use of that for sure. Nice. Then at the time, I, one of the only places you could get that sort of thing was in New York City. There was this place called Virgin Music, I think it was called. Yeah, and they had the like legitimate, glossy, you know, real piano transcribed versions of film scores was one of their big things. Um, and if you weren't going to go walk in there and buy it, you know, you'd kind of out of luck. You'd get whatever whatever really crappy children's transcription you could find at the local music shop, right? So that was it. It's much easier now. The marching band adaptation. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would um, pay good money to go see a marching band version of the Atonement score. Oh my God. Like that would be amazing. Holy shit. <laughs> the drum line just carrying around typewriters. <laughs> that would be so cool. <laughs> what about you, Joel? So as Tina prefaced, my, my first impression was watching with her. And I, I, I don't remember what we, I know we talked about it once, once the tears hit, we were both like, we both cried. I cried, but she cried. Like, so it was, it was like, okay, are you okay? And then we could have a conversation about it. And I, I, I can't remember what we talked about, but I, it, it's a movie that just twists you up inside. Like it, it so much goes wrong so quickly. And and it, 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 my first watch, I think I was very much more frustrated with Bryony as a character. And I don't know if I'm just like older and gentler now, or but like or watching Moon Knight with the kind of arc of that character and childhood trauma. Just looking at it from her perspective, which the the film is doing right, like it's her lens how we see everything first. And that really, in in the first watch, you just kind of so much is happening. It's such a densely. Uh, uh, packed first act. I, I hesitate to even use acts in the structure. It's very episodic. I mean, it has different segments that we see from multiple angles. And but th- that first chunk b- before we get out of the like manor house, so much happens so quickly, and and you're just kind of on the back foot the whole time. And then it wildly changes into this, this wartime narrative, and it, it's 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 fascinating. So I, I the first impression I have was just like blown away just so much was going on and i i don't again i can't remember exactly how long ago it was but this time watching i was so much i was also geared up for it this time watching and i was like okay i need to approach this intellectually because i know it hurt me and i don't want it to hurt me as bad again and i was also looking for because the second time you watch it you're looking for okay when when is it fiction when is it Bryony's impression of events and then where is it completely fictionalized where that didn't happen so that was an interesting kind of game I was playing with myself. It, and it, it, it was fascinating to see it's all of these different genres. It, it's, it's playing with, with the form and the genre conventions and just doing them all brilliantly. I, I don't know, like the masterful direction of this film is baffling. I don't know how you get something so just checklist down the, like, the cinematography in this film is unparalleled. I mean, this guy just lives for the tracking shot. And he j- the way he does it is incredible. Like, 
the, the sequence in, in the, um, uh, the hospital where the nurses like and Brian, he's moving from bed to bed and how it frames it, it just, it, it's such a film's film too. And I, like watching it this time again, I was very much aware of, okay, it's an, it's a narrative about writing by a writer. So when writers write about writing, it can get very twee and it can get very masturbatory and very self-serving where it's like, this is the greatest art form that we've ever had. It's the most pure. It's all of these things. And you can get preachy and you can get overly saccharine talking about it that way. But in this, it's not about that. The, 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 the joy or the, the hope that you have of, we can give these fictionalized versions justice. The idea of writing as a way of giving characters things that the world didn't give them, but they deserve. And it, it just, the tone is so perfect. Like it, it, it doesn't ever cross over into overly saccharine or overly written or overly written about writing in the way some things can. And even when you're looking for, okay, that's Briny's Cockney accent character. That That's not a real person. He's talking like that. She's not there. So, and you kind of can pick up on the little things of like, okay, what feels written too? I don't know. It's just, there's so much. It's such a dense and not dense in a, a negative, negative sense, but just densely packed. Like you get for two hours, man. It, it, and that's the thing I had to told Tyne. I was like, we looked and see, saw how long it was. I was like, oh, it's only two hours. I was thinking it was a lot longer because I can't sustain this level of in in intention. I don't know. Like it, it's, I like longer films, but this is just it shreds your 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 defenses because there's so much going on and you're focused on so much. It's it's masterful. I, I it's you could take any aspect of it and teach it as a way to do film and you would be well served to do it. It, it, Just incredible. Can I jump in? One thing I literally wrote down is like, this movie has everything. You want an interesting score? You got it. You want a continuous shot on the beach in the middle of a war? You got it. Do you want sex? There's sex. Is there intrigue and betrayal? Like it has all of these things, both technically and story-wise. And it's just like, I was realizing like, they use reflection a lot beautiful costumes the changing color from the first half to the second half and like the lighting where they're golden and like covered and then it's cold and dark it's just like it does everything but it does it in the right amount is what I was thinking is like there's flashback scenes but you aren't like oh my god here's a flashback and it I think it really is so successful and staying interesting but not being like oh everyone just threw all the different tropes in a blender and here's a movie and it even like it dodges the like was it dallas or dynasty that it's like ha the whole season was all a dream it's like the whole thing is technically like a dream but you're not bad at it you're like oh the tragedy like that turns this whole beautiful story into a tragedy anyway i it does all of the things in the best way and again, like a weaker film would have started with the frame of the novelist, you know, like Titanic, I feel like, like yeah. the, 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 the it, it just, the, the reason that frame works and it's not twee and, and, and gross is because it comes at the very fucking end and it, 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 it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's at the end, it's brief. It's just enough to recontextualize. And then we get some beautiful shots of, this realized fantasy and then done. And it's just, it, 
there's so, and this thing, as many things go as go wrong in the plot, that many things go right in the film, in the telling of it. You know, like it, it just it executes on every level in a way that few films do. Like I don't know that there's any like niggling doubt or anything that I would say is like ah, I was great except for that. I don't know that there is that for this film. For me, I fascinating. It's it helps too. I think that most of the film is still true. That even at the end when you go, oh, it was all a fictional story, it's, well, no, the last 10 minutes were a fictional story, right? The last, the rest of this is what happened. And I just shoved a happy ending on there. So that's part of why it's so effective because it doesn't, like you've both said, it adds weight instead of taking away from it because it doesn't turn out to, oh, well, I guess this wasn't real. What I watched, huh? It becomes, oh yeah, the important parts were real. And the part that you liked, the fluffy part, wasn't. Let me just, you know, stick my hand in your chest here real quick. Pull everything out. It's quick. Tina, I see your your mind working. What is what is? I disagree. Yeah. I think it works because so much of it is a farce. Like where she's like, yeah, I would like I got firsthand accounts for everything. I wasn't there to like experience, but mm-hmm. it's like so like percentage wise in terms of what is shown in the film maybe you could if you break it down is fake but the moment that like the moment they leave each other like from get from c giving robbie the postcard Mm -hmm. everything else is a lie and so like i and that's like the whole the whole of their story really didn't ever happen because they like they had well, right. sex in that... the library and never talked until that one time. That's my take on it. Is that that's why it's so tragic? I guess that's see. I the parts of that that are still true to me are the parts of him in France, right? Because that part happened. He was over there. He got separated. He got wounded. But you're right. All the parts that happen in London are part of the fakeness. With well, part of it, right? Because Bryony did train as a nurse. She just didn't go visit her sister or uh i don't know about the wedding part right but yeah so that's chunks of it right but i see what you mean i'm gonna i'm gonna agree to disagree i don't think we're gonna agree (laughs) i think it's just the line of what's fake and what's real about the presentation i will say i love that scott you are so scott because you were like the parts in the war we're definitely real. <laughs> like, right. Well, that's what I mean, right? Like, we get to that's the point what you were where like... Robbie's in France, and that's what happened to him, and he died there, as far as, you know, and et cetera, right? But then, meanwhile, Bryony was in London, and she was training to become a nurse. And, like, from the moment that she, somewhere in there, right? Somewhere when she decides to do the right thing, it stops being the truth. Did she comfort a French soldier? We don't know. Was that for the book or was that real? But she was in London and a nurse. But the the Robbie part is real. So you get that beginnings of the fiction brushing up against the endings of the reality. And I think that's part of what makes it so so devastating. Because by the time you're you've been pushed out to a hundred percent fiction is like either the wedding or when she goes to their apartment. And so she sits there at the end and it's like Oh yeah, so actually that could have never happened because he never came back from France. And then we go back to Oh, but that that wasn't that long ago. We were just watching him in France. Was it like it's sort of 
bumps up against because when her hospital gets flooded with wounded, right, that's the wounded from Dunkirk coming to her hospital. So in terms of linear minutes, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm explaining myself really well. <laughs> this is the death match I never wanted. I but, but I, My two great loves. But the no. Point that, <laughs> the point is that it takes away only the happy parts, which only show up at the end of the movie, right? Everything else that happened was terrible and is left untouched by her, her revelation. And that's what makes it so great. Because when you get that, with, you mentioned Tyna in Dallas or whatever it was, where, no, actually the whole thing was the fiction. It undercuts, it undercuts a lot of stuff. But when this becomes, oh, actually, just the one portion, it's, it's a different kind of twist. I don't know. I, I'm not explaining myself well. But... <laughs> well, I, I, one of the things that I kind of realized this time, too, and maybe, you know, Tyna, because you've read the book, it's presented differently in the book. But, like, you know, because we go back on that first scene by the fountain and we see Bryony's perspective of it. And then we see it from their perspective. And it's like, is, is this scene sort of like, like meta outside of Bryony's version of the story where, you know, the, the director is telling us what actually happened so that we have a frame of reference or is that Bryony telling what she thinks really happened in that scene? Because, like, as you're watching that, you're seeing, Tim, you know, you there is the mind. whole point of, what's that? You just blew my mind. Well, yeah, like, like the point of that scene is to see how Bryony saw something and interpreted it one way. But then right after they show up close this interaction between the two of them, which Bryony was not there for that. So what perspective is that being told from? Is that sort of like a, you know, third person omniscient perspective that's like, this is a chunk that doesn't exist within Brian's Bryony's story, or is she, is that part of what she's fabricated as a way of explaining? I thought this is what happened, but maybe it was something like this, you know? So, oh and, and, one of, and, well, and, and actually, and here's the <laughs> you thing fixed too. it for Scott. There's well, another my, level like... for this too, is that when I first watched, was first watching the film and the, the full weight of her saying that it was fictionalized hadn't struck me. I remember being irritated that during the scene, right after Bryony witnesses that, we see C running through the meadow and Bryony's theme is playing. I remember being like, well, why are they having Bryony's theme if this is them showing us the perspective of what really happened, not Bryony's perspective? And then I was like, but now I'm like, well, wait a minute. Is that their way of telling us this is also Bryony's version of this too? Like, this isn't the reality. This is Bryony making up a version of this so that she could explain how Robbie isn't actually an asshole and I just fucked up it, you know? So, so that's, I think that's part of it for me too. Yeah. Like, like kind of like you were saying, it draws into question, like how much of any of this was real, you know? Like, I think you just, I think I just understood Tina's rebuttal now because of your explanation. Because that just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the whole thing. Like you said, Tina, oh, well, it's not just the end. It's help. You're right. We don't know. Oh my God. <laughs> like, I just, uh-huh. this is why I do this podcast. This is great. Well, and the other thing is, like, aren't there? She talked about letters, right? There, there's, there's letters between, or was she not able to send any letters to him in prison? I can't remember. I mean, he had a stack of stuff, like in his coat, that, that right. the, the Cockney guy in took the cafe like, scene. Uh, he gets, he got her letters, and she says but she is wasn't the allowed cafe to visit scene in person. Real? Yeah, but if is well, the cafe scene? That. Yeah, the that's that's important, and that's the me. thing because no. I'm looking for in. Uh, for their listeners in the chat, Zeke was like, "Be right back, I'm about to rewatch the whole movie." <laughs> like, <laughs> because on the one hand, he has that postcard 
she gave him. But on the right. other hand, that's just so literary, isn't it? The soldier yeah. carrying the image of his future yeah. <laughs> he hopes for. So I'm like, oh my god. And, and regardless, like, we're talking about, like, the, the narrative frame and, and the, the – but I don't care whose who's perspective it is. I don't care if it's true. But, like, the idea that you cut from Bryony's perspective on the fountain scene and then this wide, gorgeous, sweeping shot of Kira coming down, like, the, the, the spectacle of – oh, shit, that's also something. Okay, as much as that first sequence of Bryony kind of dug it, dug it, she, she's the creative juice, right? She's – running through the manor house and as she's going life is being breathed into this location right and but like all the things we get are very kind of compartmentalized it's very like angular and labyrinthine as we're following her through the tracking shots of the house and then she sees in fits and starts this interaction that changes the tone and then we get this grand sweeping outside that also she could be orchestrated like it's it's just insane oh gotcha sorry yeah sorry just, there's commentary going in the chat making <laughs> please cut me off that's the only like, way i stop <laughs> yeah we're just we all jump over each other all the time don't feel like you have to not <laughs> yeah well in 20s i'm literally holding my copy like because i haven't read it in a really long time like flipping through and it, i will say going back to something that was asked it is written in third person um it does seem like an omniscient narrator um, have so you read any other elements. Ian McEwen novels, or has anybody here I, read any other Ian McEwen books? I listened to On Chesil Beach, which is funny enough, the movie Sorsha um, is oh, in yeah. as an adult. Is that are all his books? I mean, do you have the two? Right? Are they written from that same perspective? Does that one play with that at all? Is it first person? Like it is. I, um, I can't remember if it's third person, but it is told accurately. But it's told in two perspectives. Okay. So I can't remember if it's first or third, but like mm-hmm. the narrators are themselves. Then that would seem that this perspective becomes a conscious choice by the author, maybe, as opposed to just he always writes third person omniscient, right? Like if he he went different with the other book, presumably he did this on purpose here, right? I guess two books isn't a good sample size to speculate about this. <laughs> what do you think this I mean, is? Like... <laughs> we 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 speculate. <laughs> To have a twist like this, you have to be really mindful. This isn't some some Sherlock Holmes bullshit. And I say that with love, but it was literally confirmed that he was like, I don't know. I just, I just, I'm sure some of these logical things don't track. I just said they did. So people have taken Sherlock Holmes as like the best detective ever because look at all the things that like were written. And it's like, it's like he literally admitted that it was all junk. Um, but like this is like I don't know it's like you have to be mindful of how you do everything for that exact reason like you said Scott is like is this a conscious choice by the author and it ha- I think it has to be so here's one thread that I found that I don't want to say it's disappointing because that implies that like you know I'm I'm sad that's what it maybe I'll say more heartbreaking so and you'll probably know what I'm referring to so his little whimper that he does like throughout various parts of the film one of those is done in the scene in so the first time he does it is like right before they're going to have sex i think it's right after they tell each other that that they love each other for the first time and he does his little and then he does it again in the tea house and then he does it again in cecilia's flat when when 
when she's talking, you know, come back to me, come back. And she's after he like screams at her, like you threw me to the fucking wolves and she's pulling him back. He does it again. We know that that is not real. So does that moment, that little whimper (laughs) connect that all of those other three scenes were also not real. If that was a thread that she's including. Or is that Bryony taking a real character's real mannerism of her character and adding it to her scene? But what I'm saying is she wasn't there for those other two moments. She wasn't oh, there the second they were having sex or in the tea that. house. So if so so if if that's something that she worked into the story to none of the moments she was there for, to me it kind of holds together that like, okay, all of these scenes are also, you know, kind of completely made up, you know, because there's no, you know, again, if, if this scene that exists in fiction, which has this culmination of this theme of his character running through it, like... Don't think that, it's that deep. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I think, I, you know. The reason I say that is because I don't think that quality is done in the book of that level of detail, like, and he took a tiny little breath. Well, sure, I'm like, sure that's something yeah, James movie, McAvoy was movie, doing as him developing the character, you know. Yeah, in, in so I don't think... Decisions. However, like, again, if, if we're looking at this from the level of what actually happened and what is a story being told, like, in other words, what I'm saying is that if that was just his character and he did it those first two times, but that was not present in the scene in her in her apartment, to me, that shows, yeah, that's a that's a secret sound that he made between him and C that Bryony was not privy to. She would not have known about it. Therefore, it wouldn't have been present in that scene. The Whereas, listeners can just picture that uh, arrest or uh, um, um, always sunny uh, meme with the the conspiracy <laughs> tape. It's just us, right? <laughs> Following. Well, it's kind of like what's the? Uh, it reminds me of like the uh, um, the, the the was it Saint Elsewhere that that TV show where it had the um, the Tommy verse, the Tommy verse theory. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know Everybody, where it's like if we can all the connect crossovers. other characters that mean you know. So so that's the thing is like if you know and 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 I guess so that's one way to look at it is. I guess either, and maybe this is why I almost said disappointment. Like, I feel like if as a filmmaker, you, you are trying to distinguish between what is, what actually happened and what are the actual characters versus what is Bryony's telling of those characters, there should be a distinction between those two, you know, like if, if, you know, again, if the whole story is being told by her and she is the writer and she is the one crafting this narrative and using this rule of three as far as having like, oh, here's this 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 event that happens three times and has this significance and ties the film together in these ways. And then that's something that's planted as by her as a writer. Or I guess what I'm saying, like you said, that doesn't appear in the book. But if you're turning the book into a film, you know, I would think you would want to be true to the idea of it. And if the book is implying, you know, that these parts are real, these parts are fabricated by her to, to have a distinction. I mean, unless you're purposely adding things in to make it more vague, which then again, that gets to the point of like, uh, you know, Scott, we've, you know, when we've talked about having a, um, an ending to a film, that's like, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of up in the air, like, Oh, what is the mm-hmm. ending mean? that it can be effective or it can yeah. be like a gimmick, you know? So I feel like, Either you're either these things have to be intentional or they're they're you know inconsistent or or it's a gimmick, you know. 
so like i guess part of you know what i'm saying is that like if we're if we're in agreement that this is a great film and it's put together in a great way i think these elements have to be intentional and they have to be there for a purpose and not you know can't be ignored where it's like oh yeah like this happened in the first two scenes and then she happened to write it into the scene again because if that fabricated scene is her writing everything that happens in that scene has come from her typewriter. So him making that sound, if he makes that sound in that scene, it's because she wrote it. And so why what, is she writing that happening in that scene? Unless she also wrote about it happening in those two previous scenes. Zeke, any thoughts? <laughs> I was too busy crying. So I don't know if I had a clear thought about what was real and what wasn't. I was just, just crying the whole time. So I was going to say, when did you start crying? Because like That's a good you question. all start having like an emotional because on this is like my I don't know dozen three watch or something and it hasn't been a while but I was able to hold it together until she's like that could not have possibly happened because he died he did not make it off the beach on the final day on June first nineteen forty like and then I just lost it so when did everyone else start the the, the emotion Yeah, I mean that that was there. I felt like though when the friend was comforting him and was like, oh, let me tuck you in and, like, just rest up. Everything's going to be good. Like, let me light this match for you. A little bit of... There was some crying there, yeah. I was like, oh, this isn't going to end well. <laughs> like, this is too too wartimey, and, and his his compatriot from the war is just uh, taking a little too good of care of him for this to end well. So there were some tears there. There was some anger, like, when the wheel started turning about... Uh, about Paul Benedict's character, Paul Marshall, right? Yeah. Like, obviously, right early on when when you're like, okay, that's obviously the guy. And like, then he gets off. And like, the moment when uh, Briny kind of pins Robbie as the guy who did it, like, there was more anger. Um, but yeah, as far as tears, like, definitely when the friend was helping him. And then kind of the same line you said, like, just waterworks there through the end. There's, there's a moment in... Uh the the cafe scene where she tells him how little time there is and he makes that noise that uh so few so little like like uh, real or unreal it doesn't matter to me in that moment just it's so beautiful because he's so and it, it, that moment really hammers home like when you watch the second side it's like no they only saw each other for 30 minutes and then they both went and died fictional non-fictional in this the story that fucking sucks. Like that it, it hurts. And it just, his, his realization of the brevity of that time. I mean, cause he, so much has changed, right? He had so many years in prison, then in the military, like, or that, that the scope of time. And then he has this like little snapshot of an interaction and just the, the, the closeness, the little bit of touching that they get to do with like pinkies just over the T like that. I don't know that that really was kind of like the emotional center for me this time. Cause from, from that portion is like nothing else really happened. This is the only moment that they got. And man, that it's powerful. I mean, it's stand for me as well. Tyna right about where you are somewhere in that interview, right. That does it. But I had an extra one this time, not because of atonement, but because of Miyazaki, actually <laughs> um, one of my, I'm doing classes in the evenings, and I, between work and class, I was home for a, a brief moment to see a small piece of the middle of Princess Mononoke, which I actually haven't seen yet. Uh, it's the scene where the, the boars attack the human fortifications, and it's devastating. And lots of Miyazaki's films have are about 
you know, anti-war and preservation of the environment and that sort of thing. But the visual language of that scene, I just, I wept. I had never seen this film. I didn't know what else was going on because it was, it turned war itself as a tragedy. The very concept, everything else, the reason and justifications fell away uh, amidst the, the shame and the devastation of the act of war. And that was still fresh on my mind when we watched Atonement. So when we get the Dunkirk scene, the big, the big long take between the men and the ships that are the wreck of the ship and the horses and the cars. And that, that all came back, you know, just the absolute pointlessness of this, um, which is admittedly not fair because if ever there was a war with a point, it was World War II, to be sure, um, you know, Holocaust and all that. But uh, on its own, it's usually the end of the interview. But thanks to uh, Miyazaki, I got a little extra moment of emotion. <laughs> I think uh, for me, one of the one of the moments was when yeah, when they're in the apartment, and yeah, like the part I mentioned earlier, where he kind of yells at Bryony, and then Cecilia like pulls him back, you know, and um, you know, I mean, also the one in the tea house, like I, also that's some of the best hand acting I've ever seen when he's stirring his tea and she touches it, just the way his hand like crumbles, you know, that, and then like. When when he's getting hopeless in the tea house and she's like, and when she first said, you know, come back to me, you know, and like draws him out back out of that into into hopefulness. So, yeah, so those those movies, that's another I mean, that's kind of paired with the sound, right, is her saying, come back to me. You know, again, something else that Bryony is not privy to that becomes a theme throughout those scenes of of her you know, her whispering in his ear, come back to me, you know, that like planting that seed of hope, you know, that, you know, you're not going away forever. Come back to me. You know, that's, that's what, (laughs) that's the thing that almost sets this whole thing up to fail is that you're, 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 you're investing in that hope. You're investing in, Oh, come back to me. Like he will come back to her. Like, you know, whether he's going away to prison, come back to me. Oh, like you're, you're, you're falling into the despair of you have to go away to war and I'm a nurse and we're never going to see each other again. No, no, come back to me, you know? And I think, or I think it's even written in letters that she sends to him, come back to me. And then, um, you know, the, um, yeah, that last moment where he's like, you know, you get to the point where he looks like he's almost about to hit Bryony and then she pulls him. It looks like he's almost going to hit Cecilia, but she's able to draw him back and calm him down and bring him, you know, bring him back. Um, I think, you know, that, that's, that's a part of the, the, you know, that whole idea of kind of showing, you know, that she is like ever hopeful in all of this and she's able to give him that sense of hope, um, which, like I said, I think is, is, is the beautiful thing, but was, but is also what makes it the saddest part where it's almost like, you know, you're, you're hanging on in the hope that this story will have a happy ending. Whereas if, you know, if without that hope you would have been like, fuck, this is terrible. I'm not going to bother with this, you know, and it's, it's the fact that like, you know, and, and, you know, you know, we've talked about that too, about the, is it, is it doing something for them or is it cruel? Like there are times where I'm kind of pissed at Bryony where it's like, this is just for you. Like, this is just you needing to feel better about a shitty thing you did. This is not for them. This is not for the audience. Like you're, you're taking the audience on this very shitty ride so that you can feel better about the fucked up thing you did. And, and so again, it's, it's in what makes you go on that ride is that hope. And and that's part of, again, that's part of what we don't know if it's real. Like, did she actually whisper that into his ear before he was taken to prison? Did she really whisper that? I mean, maybe Bryony got that from the letters if she wrote, come back to me in the letters. And that's why Bryony kind of inserted that into other places. Um, you know, uh, you know, again, like, were they at the tea house? Did that actually happen? Did he say it there? But for us, the viewer, 
that is kind of what's keeping us going the way it's keeping Robbie going. That hope of like, okay, she wants me to come back to her. I have to come, I have to get back to her. You know, I have to get to someone. I'm always late. (laughs) That I think that's what, in that scene, that's what does it for me. When he's like, you can tell he's checking out, you know, Oh, I'm I'm always coming late, you know, cause he was like late to the coffee house cause he got lost. And it's like, you know, this is, this is kind of like, you know, you can tell his brain is starting to, pull out these other bed. Oh yeah. Like that time in the coffee house, this is no big deal. I just, I can't be late. She's waiting for me. It's like, you, you know, yeah. Like that, that to me is what really tells you like it's going bad, you know? And it's like, oh man, like, so, so yeah. So I think those, those lines, those moments, the, you know, the, 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 the toying with us, you know, the giving us hope and being like, this is, this is your, the rug is going to get pulled out from under you. I was going to say, did you, since you obviously spent a lot of time, Tim, looking at that, like, that final scene, I, honestly, I think part of my pushback to the, like, gasp thing is I'm like, I didn't notice that. That can't possibly have been intentional. It was so small, which is totally not necessarily true. But the way Kira Knightley plays C when she's saying, come back to me, in and it's like, She's like reaching out with like her face and her body, kind mm-hmm. of like you would with like a scared animal, mm-hmm. where you're like, you like are slowly inching and it's this like jerky. And I just like watching it this time, I like that like blew my mind of that like knowing that somebody is dangerous right now, but not being afraid of them really because they're mm-hmm. they're your person. And like, regardless of the that was real or fake, I think that's just such a really eloquent way of like showing people with trauma and how we care for them anyway tangent yeah no no yeah and i feel i feel like yeah like you you at first get concerned about the level of anger and violence you see in him in that scene and and you know and part of it's like you know you're you you you, i mean you get it like like you know he he was a completely innocent man who went for to jail for you know was it three four years then to war because of some story this girl made up you know and you're you know like or like how he says i can't decide if i want to snap your neck or throw you down the stairs and you're like that's fucked up but i get it like i feel bad that i get it but it's also but but like you know and the fact that he's like trying to or like right after that, when he grabs the tail and you can see the sin- every sinew in his arm, cause he's just like trying to keep it together and he's gripping the table and just like, God damn. Like, yeah. Like, so yeah, that's part of it. Like, you know, everything else aside, just the way this is acted by the two of them, especially is just like every, every molecule of their body is like masterfully, you know, controlled. And oh man, back at the house every moment. Yeah. Both of them. Yeah. It's all body language. It's all acting with a look. Or with a cigarette, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, not just the end scene. Yeah, please, Joel. No, just, like, the precision. I mean, again, that hand that hand acting of the, the tea shop, that little bit of the tremor, the, the drop away, the crumble. Like, how do you, you talk about hands crumbling? How do you act that? How do you prepare for that? Like, I, it's just, we've I've done that. I've felt how that feels. I don't know how you could replicate it. It just, incredible. And, again, Kira with a cigarette over everybody. Can we just she it's like a fucking i don't know it's like robin williams with a prop it's like that scarf he has in inside the actor's studio it's everything she just does every there's one she lights and then she has it and she jumps into the water with it like it just i was just cigarette tracking the whole time because that they had their own arc <laughs> are the cigarettes real or fictional <laughs> I don't know if we want to get into favorite sequences or how 
how do we want to go? Do you want to do favorite musical moments, Tim? What What are you thinking? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm open to what order we do it in. I just wanted, and it, you know, not that it has to be in place of favorite scene, because again, as we've said, like the music isn't the only thing worth talking about. You know, every aspect is worth focusing on. So, like, I don't want to limit it and be like, if your favorite scene was because of how it looked, we're not talking about that. It's music. Right. Well, then, if they're so. different, do them both, and if not. Yeah. No problem. Do you want to start us off, Tim? I mean, I kind of want to go last because, you know, it yeah, is one sure. of those things where, like, I I mean, I also I do have a few of them, so I don't want to, like, eat up a bunch of the best ones and then have everybody be like, well, that's what I was going to say. And if everybody says most of the ones I was going to say, like, there's still a few others I can draw from, so. I'll go first as the, yeah, the new please. kid on the block because I like hearing myself talk. Um, so I, my scene is different than my music, but my music is really general. It's like any time that the music is interacting directly with the action, I love it. Like the cadence, the, like Tim, you said earlier, the snap with the sheet going along, like all of that golden. So that is my favorite musical scene, all of those, but my favorite scene is the sex scene, because it is the best sex scene ever in a cinema, like zero skin, and it is the best sex scene to have ever been filmed. Um, zero score, too. Yeah, it's very quiet. It's yeah. Played it's like, just to breathing, and it's so effective. Yeah. No saxophone in this one, boys. Like, yeah, yeah. The Thank hottest God thing you can no do saxophone. is not play the saxophone. Oh, um, oh. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> vicious. Oh my <laughs> but yeah and like that dress that was a major reason why i've been obsessed with this movie because that mm-hmm. is like in terms of the costuming that is like so beautiful and amazing and so that is the best scene because it is hands down the best sex scene to have ever been filmed i have no rebuttal i agree completely with that <laughs> Zeke, why don't you go? You fought the late least on the podcast. You should go for the next. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Um, yeah, uh, I'm going to, I had a bunch. There were a lot of great scenes. So I'm going to add my a plus one to some of the ones that you've already mentioned. I think uh, Joel and Tim, you uh, took one that I had that was the, the, the tea scene in the hand. And Joel, you put it well, like the, the hand acting, right? Like that was a favorite scene for me to see them reunite and just, the close-up on their hands and just so much was told um, with with just that that I thought was really super well done. I'm going to plus one to, to Tina on both the dress and the sex scene um, because, I don't know, yeah, like you said, it was just a very, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of sex scenes in a lot of movies, and this one felt unique because of how it was done. Like you said, no skin. Um, I think specifically in the sex scene, like there's the shot of like, her feet coming up out of the heels and like just both of their, like just very well done. Um, so plus one to that violent shift <laughs> away from the, just the opposite of that sex scene. So here we go. Um, Robbie's first, like his first encounter and experience um, internalizing the, the brutality of war. Right. And the, the shot on his face as he's looking at the field, of bodies and it just close-ups on his face. You get the single tear or the tears rolling down. Just so much emotion conveyed in that shot. Just perfect zoom up to his face. Perfect um, 
in a way for him to just convey how much that's weighing on him. They're going to keep rolling the uh, lighting a match to look at the pictures, you know, both when he does it himself and when his friend does it for him. Just I'm going to start with because uh, I took the note when he did it for himself, because it's the shot of the the photo outlined in black and you kind of see it through the match and then it cuts to his face as the the light of the match is dying and you see the little bit of light reflected in his his eyes as that dies out uh a lot there that's being said from that shot that i that is metaphorical that i don't need to also say but i thought that was very powerful um and i'll stop listing scenes (laughs) just so i don't steal from everybody else but the favorite musical scene which kind of also doubled as a favorite scene was the the panning wide shot across the beach um, in the war. There are a lot of great moments there. I think um, there's one where Robbie's walking and you see um, a man kind of standing on a ledge above him while everything's burning. I thought that was a really cool shot. Um, but specifically the musical moment that, that I liked is as it's panning, you get the guy that's playing the harmonica and it really puts you in that moment because it, it pans, you know, across the guy playing the harmonica and the way the sound goes through, it's like you're passing by as well, right? Because it kind of like gets louder and then quieter as you um, follow the characters across him. So those are my favorite six scenes or whatever. Scott, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, just a, a single shot that was just incredible to me was when they're walking over the hills parallel to this irrigation ditch with water in it, or it's like a little trickle of a stream and as they're walking it's like dusk and the light from the sun's coming through and then the jets or the planes are flying up the river the reflected surface just one of the most gorgeous compositions i've ever seen i don't know how they did it i it it's incredible it looks so so good I don't know, like I, something that I really appreciated this time was when you see you you happen upon the sex scene from Bryony's perspective and the way that that McAvoy and Knightley are intertwined is almost demonic. The the angular, the angles of that and you can kind of see like they're just trying to get an angle like <laughs> but it, but when you see it and you're like, okay, 12-year-old girl, how much trauma has to happen in this house in this one night, right? Like so many things contribute to this. And it's like you can't blame a child for not understanding these things. It's also really stuffy British sensibility, right? Like they're not talking about sex, you know, and they don't acknowledge it either. They just kind of slink away. But like I just I was very evocative that moment of like, it, it it reminded me of like the the great red dragon that that twisted demonic form that that William Blake painting like it 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 just had that I don't know it was it was grotesque in a way and then the sex scene later is so interesting because you see that first and then you see the the origin of the sex scene right and then you're like you're in it and it's really hot and it's it's amazing the way they showed it it's, it's for something as smutty as it is, it, it looks incredible. It's like tasteful. There's no nudity, but it's tasteful as hell. So like, oh, it's on Family Guy, Stewie said that, oh, those are tasteful nudes. So tasteful. It's a, a coffee table book of it. Anyway, um, just like, I, I, I just thought it was so interesting that you forget how terrifying that image would be and was in that reveal. I, I, I like that. There's another scene with uh, uh, planes going over top and the, the 
the tone of it is so different because McAvoy kind of kicks back and is looking through a skyline and one goes over and he kind of has a smile. Like, oh, a plane came over. What a novelty. Interesting. Like this is before the war. So it, or it, it, war had moved to that point. So just, I, I thought that was fascinating. Um, I, I hesitate to call it a favorite scene, but like the segment, uh, I mean, the trench scene is incredible, right? The segment that always gets me is the horses. And this time I, I watched it and it reminded me um, the, the uh, director of um, Eyes Without a Face, Franju, did that documentary called The uh, Blood of the Beasts on um, industrial um, meat packing and the slaughterhouses and stuff. And there, there's footage of them kind of the bolt thing that like uh, Leatherface did, right? Like the, the, how they kill cattle. And you, it's documentary footage. And it's just, like, so evocative and so similar to how it was done in this. And it's just, like... Eh. And the way that, that tracking shot reveals the, the madness of, of that section of, of, the, of the beach is just incredible. So, like, you see horses, you hear gunshots, you see the reaction of the soldier's face, and he falls behind as he... Just, just wasteful, just, just awful this thing that's taking place. I just the way that that tracking shot continues to evolve and continues to descend into madness. It, it, it's, I mean, 1917 exists because of that sequence. I, I right. And and I, I love 1917. And I think that the kind of tracking shot obsession we get probably is a part and parcel product of this, but like, it's so dynamic and so interesting it's it's almost its own film within the film. It's crazy, and so like, and I'll I'll wrap it up with my favorite uh, musical moment. So at the end of that sequence, when Robbie comes into the um, the theater, and there's this movie playing, and I don't know what language is, I don't know what the movie is, but he is framed, and it's it's a very artsy shot. It's like very, it's very Citizen Kane. It's very like we've seen this kind of setup, and it's that's another thing of like. This is a director doing all of the director things too. So in the same way, like a writer writing about writing or like doing those things could be overly indulgent. I love this moment because in the score, when he kind of crosses over that big face, the music undulates. It's almost like there's a feedback because this story is intersecting with another story. And I don't know, like that's how I just thought of it was that, there's a feedback loop happening because the movie that we're watching has a score that is diegetic and non-diegetic and it's encountering a film that has diegetic music also. I I just thought that was such a cool, I don't know, it's a shot you see a lot, like big face is, uh, uh, projected over a smaller face to to show like this artistic distance and this like cognitive distance, right? Like he just went through the hellscape couldn't imagine that he's going into a place designed for fiction too. I, it just, there's so much commentary in that moment. And I love that. that that's the one time in the music, it, it has a little, like an unpolished quality, but it, I think it's because it had, it, it's, it's meant to convey this kind of feedback or that like, what is reality? And that's the thing he's going from that hellscape into a movie theater. Did that really just happen? Like, his perception of reality at that time. I, I don't know. Like, I, I really love that. I, I'm kind of in a tough spot because I, I, my favorite scene had been the beach 
but it wasn't this time. And for whatever reason, it just felt, it's beautifully done, but it felt like a linearly orchestrated series of dominoes triggered to go off as we went past. And I don't know why it felt that way to me this time and didn't mm. the other times. Uh, Specifically, the horses, after the horses, you get the, the trucks, the guy with the sledgehammer knocking the radiators out of the front end of the trucks. And I think they should have reversed that mm. because after the horses, the trucks are irrelevant. But if you see the trucks first, you'd, you'd get sucked in into going, oh, yeah, I guess they can't take that with them. Huh, that makes sense. Oh, my God, you know, like, you get that shift of, of agreement. Um, that's a really minor nitpick, I guess, and that's not, like I said, the reason it's not wasn't my favorite this time was more just because for some reason it felt planned, and I don't know why. I kind of have left without a favorite scene because I, I don't know. I just I couldn't think of anything else. The cinema moment that you mentioned, Joel, is great. He's framed up there, and, I, and I, but it's also just so it's so movies, you know. Oh yeah, it feels kind of dumb to pick. I don't like. I kind of I want to not pick it, but I don't know what I can. Um, I, I picked it. You don't have to be dumb. Right. <laughs> I was gonna say, did it feel? Did the beach scene feel like a Rube Goldberg of death? Yes, thank you. That's a great phrase. Because yeah. it like I totally I never thought of it that way because I love that shot, but it doesn't feel real in the way that everything else does. Yeah, there's something about so I, the sound passing by that as soon as something's not on screen anymore, it's not happening anymore. And the moment that should fix that is when we go up to the balcony by the bar and get the broad shot, and there's that dude on the mast still yelling that he's coming home because that stopped happening and now is still happening. Right? That should be the moment that threads threads the needle but it didn't click for me for some reason. Um, See, I think in that scene, like narratively, I I let that go because I'm like, okay, this is a visual yeah, cacophony. for me before. And it's Every like time. a perspective of the person kind of tracking from thing to thing because there's so yeah. much. It's so cacophonously dense that like, but yeah, it, it, it's a huge sequence. I insane. I, I like that moment. part of it is that like you're you're supposed to appreciate it as a reality, but maybe... You know, now that we're more seasoned, we look at it and be like, oh, what a brilliant shot this is. And like knowing how films are made, your brain is thinking about what happened, what had to happen in order to orchestrate this. And now you're appreciating it like from the perspective of a director, like as an artist, not just being engulfed in the reality of it, you know, like that, mm. you know, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I think part of it is that it, in reality, other parts of that reality that you are experiencing intrude upon yours. Like the horses, they just start when the characters walk up. First horse in line. And they walk past a line of like 10 horses. But the moment they step up off the dirt onto the the road where the trucks are, there are no more gunshots or whinnies. Shouldn't, and I, it didn't occur to me until just now. Shouldn't we be hearing that? I don't know. Oh, well, um, I mean, <laughs> uh, if I, have to, I guess I'll pick, I really love the barn at the beginning where they're holed up in the barn and the two Frenchmen come by to be like, yeah, like we're, we're all here, you know, fighting for our country, but then they tell them, oh yeah, no, we're fucked. <laughs> we don't know where we are. We're leaving. And the Frenchmen are just so sad. Their whole demeanor changes after that. It's true. The English are retreating. And the entire interaction is just somber from then on because they can't go wherever the soldiers are going. They have to stay. They don't know what's going to come to them. That's just a great human moment and that's not remotely the point of the scene it's meant to just establish that the soldiers are screwed and he's hurt and they're leaving but it's a wonderful moment of connection across cultures 
that I really love. Musical scene is actually the opening of Bryony in the hospital with the typewriters and all the nurses walking. That scene lived in my head when I saw this in 2007, and it lived there for months. And I think it just was the final culmination of the music and the typewriters and the on-screen visuals coming together yet again for the 12th time in the most perfect way. Uh, where they took everything from before and went, this was the point. We're prepping you for this the whole time. So musically, that's the one, even if the actual scene is mostly just a bunch of people walking around. you know. And then I want to take a moment to talk about the tube station bombing in the end, because that scene also lived in my head for months as one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen on a screen in my life. Of all the people crammed in there together, and the idea of the water just rushing, and just the helplessness. Because, of course, it's faster than you. You can't turn around. There's nowhere to go. There are no doors. It's a single tube. Everything's underwater. The absolute, complete hopelessness of that being in that situation grabbed a hold of me and wouldn't let go. So that's not a favorite, obviously. And there's not musical, but I need to talk about it. Because, <laughs> yeah, that was a big one. In a similar vein, when Bryony is, is uh, moving over to the, the part of the ward that is curtained with red curtains and the the reveal of that effect i like i don't know it, 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 i've seen some shit like like horror gore stuff i don't know that i've seen anything that impacts you the way those gore effects do and i don't know like that because we can we brian e is a nurse we, there's a realism to that aspect of the war that in this narrative that she's telling that is completely you believe because you can smell it, you know, like you like that. And the fact that she unwraps that, how she acts it too is brilliant. And just the, this it's weird to talk about that uh, brain injury effect as subtle, but it's just enough. You know, it's not gushing. It's not a joke. It's like, it, it's just simply horrible. And it, that that was something in the same vein of like, I I I didn't remember it going into it, and then I saw red curtains. I was like, oh, th- I, there's something I can't remember quite what it was, and it, it didn't lose any of its intensity. That's the say, subtlety. All of, yeah, but all of the Dunkirk, like the Dunkirk, like um, with Bryony in the hospital, all of the like survivors and injured. It's like. It's one of, like, I love Pearl Harbor, and I think it does the, like, bringing people in, but I think it does it, and granted, I was not at Pearl Harbor. I'm sure it was completely chaotic, but there's, like, a difference to this that's, like, a actually when people are in, like, these tragedies, there's, like, a weird stillness at the same time. It's, like, you're moving, but it's, like, you're just moving forward, moving forward. You're not sitting there screaming and screaming and screaming as the dead are being brought in or the injured. Like, you're, like, you're moving, and it's, like, yeah, you're crying in the corner. I think there's just, and, like, the way they show, like, they're very viscerally shown, but it's not, like, I'm not upset. I mean, I'm upset in one way by seeing the open brain here, but it's not the, like, it's not like it's designed. It doesn't feel voyeuristic. It feels very, like, uh, it's not the way that like horror movies do that. I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. oh, it's a matter of fact. Down because we've seen all these wounds in, in lead up scenes, but we're not stopping to look at them because there's right. work to do and we're moving forward. And it's all, it's there, but it's not processing. And that shot of, I think it's Brian's friend Fiona just crying in the corner out of sight of the patients because 
the soldiers were living the war for, you know, Robbie and the others were trudging through that hellscape. But for the nurses here, the war has just been a lot of practice until, boom, it isn't. Here it is at its full force. And seeing that was a great moment. And then the the subtlety of the, the head injury. It reminded me, Joel, of Saving Private Ryan's opening beach landing is violently gruesome. But the one that stuck with me is the soldier who's standing up looking for something. And it stuck with me because it takes you like six seconds to get it because it's subtle. And it's not, oh, Tom Hanks looks down and the guy he thought he was pulling is now half guy or whatever. It's why the hell is this lunatic standing up in the middle of the beach looking for something on the ground when he could be on the ground looking for something on the, and he turns and his arm is missing. Oh, and he leans over and picks, might be his arm, we don't know, picks it up. And then the scene cuts on. That was the one, right? Because the other stuff was, it was like the hospital bits leading up. It's there and it's fast and it's in your face and it's, but it doesn't, it doesn't stop. You got to keep going. You got to get off the beach. There's another patient to help, someone to carry, go over here. And it's, that moment, we focus on him long enough without understanding for it to hit. Whereas with the soldier for Bryony, everything is now done. And we finally have the time to look and to see. And then when she leaves the curtains, and there are two more sets of curtains in the ward. And she didn't, you know, the sister says, go hold his hand for a bit. Bryony's like, seems confused. Hold his, okay. Well, now you know what that means when right. they tell you to go hold a soldier's hand for a bit. Right. Well, on that note, Tim, what are your favorites? So as far as favorite scenes, I mean, yeah, like you you, you all kind of hit a lot of them and there are so many. Um, but one of the ones that I thought of, um, and it's not so much a scene, it's more of a transition. And it's the, so it's, you know, the part, um, yeah, Zeke, I think you were, you were the one who was saying this when he sees the field of like the dead children and then he remember he so we've had a few we have a few flashbacks in here, but usually the flashbacks either go to the flashback of him and her in the tea house or the flashback to the two of them saying goodbye before he goes to prison, and this flashes back to and I think even this is well before because I think Bryony mentions at one point I was ten years old and I pretended I was drowning so this is like four years before even where we start the story, so this is this pulls us from one of the worst moments we're seeing in the war aspect of this, of, of, you know, a a, field of dead children to him jumping back to, you know, the most simpler of times before any of this, not even before he was just right before he was whisked off to jail, like him and his, his pal, as he calls her, which I feel like is adorable. And, you know, this whole interaction, which is kind of like, you know, like he's angry by the end of it, but, how the contrast just like looks because we, you know, you know, again, when we, we get to see that lighting at other areas, like the pre-war lighting, but like to see him, like how different he looks, how young he looks, how fresh he looks, how full of color his face is. And like with her and we, it's, it's like the first interaction we see with the two of them where she's like, are you coming to my play? And he's like, Oh, blah, blah, blah. You're going to give me the bound guy. I've read all your story, you know, and you know, just going about their daily lives. So you you get another scene like that that's older and simpler and more pure than that. And then, boom, you're snapped back to the field of dead children. It's like, fuck. Like, like aside from the love story aspect and how terrible it is, I think that is the 
you know, <laughs> it's my favorite scene because it's the worst, like, of the film. Like, it's it's the most terrible to behold, and it's the one that, like, like you know, sticks the knife in and twists it, like, further, you know? Um, so, yeah, so that, and like I said, it's not a particular, I mean, I guess you could call it a scene, but it's that that flashback and where we're flashing back to and then where we have to return to. Um, and, yeah, so as far as music, there's a, there's a ton of them. Um, yeah, I agree with Tyna. Like anytime, like, you know, the typewriter in the music, the, the time when we have the repeated piano note and she plucks the piano string inside the piano, the one where Bryony's playing the piano, like, like all of those within the first half, the, the culmination of that, where as he's being sent to prison and they, how they take it up to a notch where his uh robbie's mother is hitting the hood of the police car with her umbrella and then that works its way into the score also so we have the typewriter we have that we have Bryony's theme we have we're zooming in like so that was like you know as much as i appreciate oh there's the typewriter oh there's this oh here's the sound of the you know his lighter being used as, as a percussion sound at one point like just that in the like that sound has so much more weight to it too. Like that's his mother, you know, watching her son being taken away to prison and her reaction to it. So not just the sound of it, but the weight of what is causing that sound gets worked into the music as well. So that, yeah, the, the, that, that whole, whole musical scene coming together is incredible, which of course then transitions to one of the other really good moments is that the, the, the the harmonica melody that's being played sort of is what is what ends up being like I'm, i mean i'm guessing it's their their love theme and you know it's kind of used in a bunch of different places sometimes it's it's maybe you could call it a like, like longing love theme of them not being necessarily together i mean it does play um in the tea house also you know when the you know afterward and afterwards it kind of we get that full-fledged as they're again hopeful oh we can stay at the cottage and then i hope this bus never comes and they kiss for the first time like that theme is first introduced in the harmonica diegetically played by his soldier friend you know like which which completely snaps us out of that other thing into this other thing and just the contrast of that scene before when he's being taken away is one of the biggest instrumentations we've seen and it cuts to solo harmonica like the loneliest sounding instrument you will ever have you know um so that they yeah, that moment's incredible Obviously, the two moments where the score gets integrated with the soldiers singing, both one on the beach, and then also there's that one, I think it's it's part of Robbie's dream, I think, when he's kind of like hallucinating, where they're in the theater again, and they're singing, I think it's the White Cliffs of Dover. And yeah, the, again, the score kind of starts beforehand, works into that, that, you know, you get the soldiers coming in again, we see them standing there singing, which, you know, it's, it's part of his dream. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. And then, you know, their kind of singing fades out and the score continues. Um, that was, that's also incredible. I think one of my favorite things, and this isn't a super cool music thing that happens. This is in a lot of ways, a standard scoring thing, but, um, when Bryony's with her friend, when you know when she's a nurse and she kind of sneaks away to go right in the middle of the night, and her friend kind of catches her, and they're talking about the story she's writing, the two figures by a fountain. When she starts to tell her friend what it's about, the score that comes in is almost verbatim the score we hear when she first looks out the window, like when she hears the bee and she sees the scene happen from her perspective. And then when she says, but she's too young and doesn't understand the way it shifts to this other completely musical idea that starts building towards something. And then she says, 
but I'll probably never finish it. And it cuts off dead. And I remember watching this and when I was analyzing it, I didn't notice it the first time, but being like, oh, I hope that theme comes back when she's, you know, doing the interview at the end, but it doesn't, it does come back in the end credits. So it's like kind of this, like we, we get like the culmination of that theme, but it almost works better, you know, like, and the reason I wanted it to come back in the interview is because that's the story she said she probably never would tell, but then she does tell it. That's the book atonement and she's talking about it. But the fact that within the context of the narrative of the film, you don't, you don't get that. You don't get to hear where that little film, that, you know, that, that little clip that started with, oh yeah, I'm going to tell you this story about when I was a kid and I saw this scene. It's like, okay, sure. We'll bring back the music from that. But oh, now I realize that I was, you know, oh, here's this other theme that has a promise of going somewhere and then it never goes anywhere. And then in the end credits, if you listen to like all the end credits music, it does come back and become this kind of fully formed thing, which I don't know if that's meant to be, um, you know, for, for a point or just the composer wanting to be like, hey, I want to make use of this theme that I came up with that I had to probably had to write a full eight to 16 bar theme so that, you know, it was there, but only got to use like two measures of it, you know? Um, but that was just point where I need to go back and rewatch it. Cause I'm fast. Like I did, I didn't catch that moment and now it's, it's so all subtle, I want yeah. to see. Like, mm-hmm. that's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and again, it's the only reason I caught it was because one of our assignments is pick a few themes and track them throughout the film. So of course, everybody who would pick that film did Bryony's theme. It's the most obvious. It's the easiest to hear. It, it's, you know, it's so in your face, you know, plus you get a break from it because there is the whole war scene. We are like, I can skip over all of this because there's no Bryony theme and it doesn't come back again until we see her as a nurse, you know? And then it's like, Oh, brilliant. I get the, you know, why this theme comes back. It's nice and easy to talk about this, but yeah, there were, uh, so that was one of the things is that it's, it's this slow, mysterious version of Bryony's theme that, you know, that happens when she's kind of like, what's going on out there? What are they doing out there? Um, And, and yeah, and it's perfect that that's what, came back you know as you're as i was listening and oh look there's brian's team but yeah it's it's it, it was i think it's an example of like what it means to be a film composer is that you probably have to put your heart and soul into crafting this new theme that barely gets used because you want that theme to have the weight of you know this is this is hinting at everything that happens beyond you know once she realizes I fucked up. I, this didn't mean what I thought it meant. And then to have such a small piece of it that has to go nowhere because she says, but I'll probably never finish it. And it just cuts off, you know, um, you know, and again, kind of showing where how much, you know, silence is such a part of film scoring too, is that, you know, it doesn't go somewhere like you score that with the thing stopping dead, you know, mid mid phrase and everything. Um, so, yeah, so that's one of the moments that I thought, you know, aside from the, the, the really cool ways we get to play with the reality by including it, you know, and, and, you know, I think that's, I think part of why that got to happen with this story is because of the nature of it, because it's being told from Bryony's perspective and, you know, and being influenced by those sounds, but this, this, you know, also, like I said, it was handled in a much more traditional, mature film scoring way. We're going to reference this theme. We're going to shift to another theme. You know, it's not, we're not playing with the idea of diegetic versus non-diegetic. And it's just, this is how this is being scored. Uh, And that's actually something too, even the whole, I mean, most of the whole second half is scored like 
you know, with a completely different vibe. You know, like I said, we don't hear Bryony's theme. We hear a lot of these other, you know, darker themes, these more war-related themes we get. The, and I, this, this is how I referred to it um, in my in my paper because I was writing about how when we hear the harmonica and it very much has the 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 vibe and the shape of like a Wagnerian, you know, operatic light motif where, oh, this is the melody for, you know, if this were Tristan and Isolde, this would be like, oh yes, this is the theme that we recognize as their love theme. And just the shape of it, how it 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 does this technique of building, you know, you up to a certain place and then kind of leaping past it and then kind of returning to the note you thought you were going to get eventually with this like sigh, you know, and, and that's kind of built into this theme. Um, and I remember my teacher be like, oh, yes, you know, the, the Wagnerian harmonica. Yes, that's a, you know, <laughs> that, that idea that, you know, that's the opposite of any instrument Wagner would have used, you know, in kind of creating his score. But but the fact that the harmonica captures like that, like I said, it's the loneliest of instruments, you know, you um, and I love how it's the the harmonica is the bookend to that scene where it shows here's it being played by the, the his soldier friend. It goes into, um, you know. The, the, that scene that you mentioned, Scott, where the two you know French guys come up and they bring him the food, and then he kind of has this dream slash flashback to some other stuff, and then it works its way through there, and it ends with this is actually what I want to another one of my favorite scenes. It ends with him kind of at sunrise out in the field by himself, and we hear the harmonica, and now it's become not diegetic because it's not his friend playing it. This is used to score Robbie, and it's when he looks at the wound at his chest. And again, like the, the weight in that sigh that he does, that shuddering sigh, yeah. like I've never been there. I've never been in the middle of a war with a wound that I'm pretty sure is going to kill me, but I've been there with things hanging over my head that it's like, this is a fucking ticking time bomb. Like, am I going to get to take care of this in time? Or is this going to be the end of me? You know, and that where he's trying to like move past it. He's trying to like, okay, I just got to keep going. Got to keep moving forward. You know? The harmonica and, is a typical, maybe, maybe not in Britain, but here it's a typical jail instrument. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. That's the other part of it. Yeah. He's still a prisoner. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So it was so, so interesting to see yeah. harmonica in this context too, because like I do have a picture of like like World War One, World War Two with harmonica as a thing, but I always associate it with westerns, right? Like it, it, you're out on the trail, like that's or or in in a prison. You know, I like, I feel like that's such an interesting, in the same way saxophone has the connotations it does in film <laughs> language, right? So the harmonica being used in this context also as as the herald of these themes is so interesting and so cool. And that's the thing, like, a way to set the mood really easily is just like, here's some harmonica, right? Like, it 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 puts you in a specific place already in the same way saxophone does, you know? So it, it, it's cool to see it used as, as it, it's an abstract an abstraction of an organ, right? Like a mouth organ, right? Like it's an imitation of, so I don't know, like is just an interesting thing that they kept coming back to. And that, a little bit of my, but it's like, every time I hear it, I think old West is like, ah, oh, I see what they're doing. It, it just was an interesting, I had to teach myself to, to, listen to harmonica how it was being used in this film which was really cool right yeah that, that's part of the, the yeah the, the wagnerian harmonicas yeah it's not played in the way of traditional it's it's played in the way yeah like the you know that the the way that melody is shaped um yeah it is is not the type of thing you would get 
on a harmonica, I feel like. I mean, I don't know a ton about harmonica music. I mean, I know kind of how they work, but yeah, it's 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 not the the yeah, this 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 arching romantic melody is not usually what's played on the harmonica, you know. You know how to play the harmonica, Tim. You just put your lips together and blow. And blow. <laughs> and <suck. laughs> you gotta what blow is that from what is that reference? <laughs> I'm trying to dredge it up. It's uh, I'll just Google it. I broke us. <laughs> Wait, you made it, a reference it is, I didn't it is get. Bogart, who says it? In it. You know, to whistle who says it? But it's um, Google, please. Okay, to have and have not, apparently. Okay, but I haven't even seen. <laughs> but I know the quotes. So, uh, how often? Oh, and it's you know how to whistle, not. Uh, play the harmonica, so right, yeah. I don't know the quote. Or the like quote. Tim got that reference. That's, you dusted off an oldie, that one. Good job. I, mean, I got the reference, yeah, but that you changed it to apply it to harmonica. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, you did that on <laughs> purpose. Just take credit for it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, so yeah, so it's, 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 it is hard to pick like a favorite, and that's part of why I wanted you all to go first, because then it's like, okay, they can talk about my other favorite musical moments that, you know, were also favorites, but like, you know, still free me up to, to focus on the others. But, but yeah, like every, oh, uh, another moment that I like too, is the one where she's off writing. And that's one of the, the times we, that's another time where we get one of the the more full orchestrations of Bryony's theme and kind of what I talked about in my paper was that like, it's off her kind of turning these real events into fantasy. That was her writing about these fictional characters that are based on all these people. So rather than the kind of like quirky piano with a little bit of string under, uh, uh, you know, um, underscoring it's, it's, you know, this more, more broad kind of fantasy, you know, the, the way you would score a fantasy with a fuller orchestra, you know, bigger string range, um, you know, you've got this harp in there, you know, like that type of thing. And it's how it's, yes, it's scoring the fantasy that's running in her head about these characters, you know, count so-and-so and this and that and all this stuff. And then how, um, how it, it, you know, it shifts moods as she's kind of talking in these, this, this montage and then how it shifts again when it shows um, Robbie and she's talking about count whoever the most dangerous man in the world, you know, kind of showing she's already made up her mind about him, you know, that like, you know, she's, you know, she's not taken with him obviously anymore, which, uh, which, yeah, now that I think about it, I forget why, like, oh no, that is after the letter. I think it's when she, yeah, she runs off afterwards. Well, no, because that's when he's typing the letter. Anyway, we'll talk yeah, about I'm, that for a second. Like yeah. the that's another great scene too. That that performance <laughs> by McAvoy is so perfect, and like because we have so many questions going into that sequence, and like it's so C U N T. Like right, we see that typed several times, and I just there there's a moment where he does it, and you read what he's writing, and you don't see all of it. And then there, he has this, it's a pause. It's, 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 I'm so grateful that it's a, a moment of ambiguity because you see his face and it's kind of twisted in a villainous way. And then he bursts out laughing. He's like, oh my God, how silly that would have been. You know, like to, to have meant that, to send it like that. And like, just, oh, it's it's British. This is sentiment. Like, there's no way that, that I could ever interact with this person like that. And, but there's, there's a moment and it's so, it's such a great pause where you're not sure if he's the villain Briny is going to think he is later. And I, I love that. I just thought it was such a great, they, they're playing that line the whole time. You know, I, I, I the, the, the ambiguity of, are are we meant to think of this as sinister 
oh no, there's a laugh. But then we get more details later. Oh, that's also sinister through the lens of a child too. Like I, I, I just, it's fascinating that just shots, the wide shots in this are incredible. Like again, them coming down from the manor house to the fountain, the, the switch of perspectives. And I, I it's gotta be a crane shot, right? Like it's massive. I, I hesitate to even call it a wide shot. It's so long. Like we're getting for background, foreground, middle ground, like that whole tracking towards it's a Kurosawa move. They do it a lot. It's all like camera moves as the, like there's so much motion going on, but that sequence also when McAvoy is coming up the lane in his tux, I just, how easily characterized. We know everything about that character from that, right? He's coming up the manor walkway from the guardhouse where his mom lives to the house of the dude who paid for his education. Like, and he, like, everything about how much of a poser he feels like, and he's in love with Cecilia. And then all of this shit happens on top of that, right? Because the the weight, like the the, the, uh, fealty to the Lord of the Manor thing, like, not only does he already feel indebted to and lesser than this family, now they think he's a deviant and like just such an interesting, you know, you find out all of those details about him through dialogue, but that visual his uncomfortability of walking up the lane like that. It just, you, you, you get it. You understand that guy so well. I, I don't know. Every shot is telling you so much, it, not a wasted frame. I also love, I, I forgot about this until I rewatched it this time right before he leaves when his mother, he's saying bye to his mom and she like calls him back. Oh, Robbie, what? Nothing. And it's like, she knows, like she knows this family will fuck him up, you know, like, and it's like, you know, you, you know, you get that, that, and again, you don't realize that probably the first time you watch it, like, well, what was she going to say to him? You know? And then like at the end when, you know, and she's like, you know, pounding on the hood of the car, it's like, you know, yeah. Like I know you still see us as just like these servant people that are disposable and this, and this, and that. And, and of course to the mom, you know, she probably, I don't know if she knows why they took her son away at this point yet, you know, or, or if they told her, like, she probably doesn't believe them, you know? And it's like, you know, especially if they're like, Oh, well, Brian, he said that she saw him. It's like, she's probably like, yeah, this fucking little girl's probably making shit up, you know? But like the fact that she kind of knew, almost wanted to tell him like, you stay in your lane, man. Like, you know, there's only trouble this way, you know, like, and then she's like, no, have a good time. Like, I'm, it'll probably be fine. <laughs> Can I say that was so that was so interesting to me watching it this time because of how shitty they treat Danny. And it's like, so why is he, why is Danny, because he's lower class, treated so crappy while Robbie's like allowed to be a part of it. And even though you hear like C is like, doesn't want to like run around with him. And I'm like, well, that was probably because she wanted to fuck him. And like that, like she couldn't be seen to want to sleep with a, a poor boy. But, like, they're so shitty to Danny. Everyone is. And then even when they go and they're like, do you know where Danny Hardman was? Right down. And she she instantly jumps to the other poor man that happened to be there that night. And it's just so, like, as much as I am wholly endeared to see and, like, love her to death. She's, like, the, the romantic heroine of this. She's still shitty and classist. And I think that just like pulls through the whole thing where she's like, she can deal with Robbie because she wanted to sleep with it. 
And I also got the sense that there's there's like a continued history. And I think they knew each other or were at unis that were close to each other. I feel like that there's some dynamic yeah, of them meeting out at Cambridge at the same time right. and that she was avoiding him. Right. Or they, they might have had a re- in that interaction where I don't yeah, know. We don't even know. The family like, knows that she was avoiding him. But Bryony yeah, doesn't who, know. Who knows what's going on there? Yeah. <laughs> Bryony doesn't know. <laughs> That's Cecilia and Brian. <laughs> That's how you make it into the uh, uh, um, drum and bugle corps <laughs> marching band show is you put <laughs> post punk. <laughs> so, so I have a, um, I guess, yeah, I guess I have, I have a question to, to for Tina as far as like your interpretation of this, um, you know, maybe, you know, and since you've read the book, also, I have another scene that pops in my. There's no category this belongs in, but again, it's something I noticed on rewatching. Which at first you don't think much of it, but then you kind of see, like, knowing how this turns out, how sinister it is when they're all at the house waiting for Robbie to come back, and fucking Benedict Cumberbatch is passed out on the couch asleep. Oh my it's god! Like, this motherfucker's like, oh, I got laid. I'm tired, you know. And it's like, and again, you don't think anything of it, but then you're like fuck like everyone else who's all concerned and and just how how also how shitty that is like he knows he's the one who did it he knows they're searching for robbie he's like all right i'm in the clear like i can just sleep peacefully now so at that point is he is he asleep after they find um lola or is he asleep before they start ser- while they're trying to search for the boys well no they're they all out searching for the boys and i think once oh they and then after they go okay, yeah. that's why which, yeah. yeah, which is also weird, too, because, like, they all give up searching for the boys, which, you know, I guess, you know, is, to some degree is understandable. I mean, like, okay, this other bad thing happened, but it's like no one else is out searching for the boys at that point. And then all this stuff is happening while Robbie being the only one doing the thing they're supposed to be doing, you know, and everyone's yeah. like, oh, to show up, you know, yeah, yeah. It's also like the the cognitive dissonance of, like, you just saved these two kids. And so, like... W- I, yeah. There's so Where did you much. have the time to go rape Lola yeah. if you were finding the two kids? This yeah. uh anyway, that doesn't yeah. track. I listen to a lot of true crime. Can I say something about the Benedict Cumberbatch? And I know we have to be mindful of time so we can do our situational. Yeah. But Benedict Cumberbatch plays this with such great smarm. And I don't know if this is a relatable um experience. I kind of hope it isn't, but as a young woman growing up. There were definitely times like because because Lola's flirting with him because That's what like, I wanted to ask like, you about yeah yeah so like think, she's flirting. Do you think she knows that it was him when they get married? Because the way she oh, yes. she puts her head down after she sees Bryony. Yes, no, she okay. totally does, and I okay. think yeah, and I think that is. I mean, I can't remember if it's in the book like that, but that like she she has to know, yeah. um, and I feel like that is partially it. Like comes from like a grooming history because I'm assuming he didn't just not talk to her again, but like there's a lot of um, it's actually something that happens sometimes where women that are sexually assaulted by someone will actually create a relationship with their assaulter. Um, with the perpetrator because it like gives them power in a way um, and it's like taking back power um, which is like one of the many ways that people respond to like sexual assault and stuff but I just like felt so viscerally like I have been luckily not in a position like that fully but like in the in the room where you're trying to stand up straight and like 
be like a big girl and like that you're you're an adult i'm not don't please don't talk like that in front of the children and like have older men play into that and not in a fatherly way like robbie does or like a friendly older brother way but like in a like I am looking to consume you. And I like Benedict does such a good job with like being that aggressive male that's like in polite society. But like you can even see him start to break a little when he's like, bite it. You have to bite it. And it's like, so you can see this like animal that's like underneath. And it's like, whether he actively that night was like, I'm going to go get Lola. But he like, it was there for so long. Anyway. I mean, also, like, he, he attempts to assault her earlier, right? Like, that's why she's got the wrists. That's why he's, he's got, got the bloody it. nose. Yep. Like, that whole whole thing is, like, it's feeding into that. And it's also, like, it's so interesting, too. That is happening parallel to what Bryony is inventing sinister. And that's the other thing is, like, the mistakenly sinister, genuine, consensual sex juxtaposed with the the abhorrent rape of a minor like just and briny turned her imagination on the one that was not harmful you know like that that's another aspect of it is like where where the the writer points their focus because she makes everything fast like she's walking through the room and it's lighting up as she opens into like you know like that is her as the author She's making everything magic and dance. And then when she sees something, she's looking through, okay, sinister, it's its own changes. And she, when she's talking to Lola, she's so wrapped up in this other fantasy, she's not, she, she's not turning that perception and that aggrandizing imagination on when Lola is telling her stuff. You know, that, that Lola talks, like, there's no time for Lola to tell her about that aspect of it. You put me in mind, Tina, of um, a little bit of Asuka from Evangelion. For those of us who've seen that, that she... Two of us? <laughs> you and me? Okay. And Tim. Yeah, all <laughs> oh, three of us. I didn't know you had finished it. That's cool. Uh, she, so she's... I think they're all 14 in the show, right? And she's being... Sounder ship is being escorted by the, the company agent who's flying with her. You know, the whole unaccompanied minor. Hey, you, you're both being transferred to Japan. You look after her while you travel. He's been... The Misato to the Shinju, you know, checking up on her. And she's, everything she does is a mimic of what she thinks adults do, and it's all sexualized. And I don't remember if it's the same episode where we first introduce her or a later episode, but she's been doing that. The poses, the gestures, saying the euphemisms, you know, to only ever to the adult men, never to the kids her own age, because she's so desperately trying to be relevant and be an adult as a person and like i'm not you know a dumb kid like the rest of you but it comes it sort of peaks when she says i think it is to kaji i'm you know ready for all the grown-up stuff kaji for kissing and everything else because she just she runs out of things to say after one thing and it's kissing because she doesn't actually know because she is a kid so for all that her mimicry is really upsettingly accurate in the way she mimics the adults around her and the way they are, she doesn't actually know what they're doing or, you know, get what the actual consequences are going to be if she, you know, she doesn't know what she's asking for, as it were. And what you were saying, Tina, about Lola and Cumberbatch, really, that struck me as familiar from Evangelion. On so that lighthearted note. Yeah, not a fun place yeah. to, to transition into a joyful segment. <laughs> oh, did, oh, I just, did, sorry, did, I, did I had one, 
I had one other comment I wanted to make about that, that thing too. And I, I think I told some of you this where like, um, because when I was doing my project, I was the, the, the scene right after the one with, with you have to bite it is the one where she's sitting, Bryony's sitting there writing the story and that we get that kind of more fully orchestrated version. And because I kept having to return to that scene to start like listening to take stuff down, you know, every time I would back it up to about here's where it starts, I would always have to get that little end of that scene. You have to bite it. And so that scene I had heard like, like 50 times. I was just like, God damn it. Like, I, I hate this. I, <laughs> I need to be done with the scene so I can stop hearing him say that. It was, it was, a, it was the worst part of doing the analysis, which is, you know, because there's so little room in between that. Like he says it and you get like a second to just be like, huh, and then it's on to something else. Like, because they probably want you to forget. They don't, but they don't want you to suspect that it's him when she gets raped. So it's like, yeah, we want to plant this seed, but we kind of want you to forget with something completely different now, you know? Yeah. And so that was, that was another, another weird side effect of having to do this as a project is like, Oh, why are you making me listen to this? I was just going to hop in real quick. Cause I think, um, I think for me, that was one of the things about the beginning that was so jarring. Like we've talked about, there are so many things that happen in that first like 45 minutes in terms of character development, meeting everyone, um, establishing relationships between people, you know, planting some of the seeds that, that, um, Benedict's character, you know, is pretty skeezy, things like that. And, but, but even while all that's going on, I think there's still the sense of innocence, right? Because when, uh, Bryony gets the letter and, and opens it and reads it, um, from Robbie, you know, and she's shocked by the word, she takes it to Lola and they're sitting there. And when they're like, what? He's a sex maniac. Like seeing that at that moment in that first time, it felt innocent, right? Because you knew, I think, what Robbie's true intentions were. He didn't mean to send that letter. He meant to send a different one. He didn't mean for um, for Bryony to read it. And so there's still that sense of like, okay, like it's still, you know, light essentially, right? It's still, there's, everything's coming to a head. And then I think it was so jarring because the seeds planted that, that you know, that, Paul's looking after, looking at Lola in a, you know, weird way. And that's kind of like, okay, but they're not going to go anywhere with that, right? And then Lola and Bryony are looking at Robbie in a different way. And then the way it comes to a head was just so unexpected where it just clashes and, uh, you know, it unfolds in the way that it does. I, I don't think I was expecting that end to that act, right? It, it felt like it was going to bubble up into something still a little bit more innocent because that's what the first stretch is grounded in. Um, so I just think it made it that much more powerful because it came from that innocence and it stemmed into that drastic, terrible, um, awful act that kind of rippled through everybody. And I think that was another, there are a lot of parallels. I think one, right, is that war kind of tears everyone down and sends a ripple effect through everyone it touches and through everyone they know. And then there's also ripple effects for, um, Briny's lie, and then there's ripple effects from the incident that led to Briny's lie. I just think there's a lot of parallels uh, with a lot of things from that transition to innocence to disaster, I guess, for lack of a better word. And that is the title of the book <laughs> From Innocence to That's, yeah, that's so good. I was thinking the, the satirical title is It's Not What It Looks Like, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, another musical moment that I really liked was the when the, the sequence where we're going through the um, uh, hospital and we start with the BB Ho BBC Home Service in in that very buttoned down way you deliver the the Queen's English King's English deliver received English that BBC and the integration of the radio 
into the score as that kind of sequence goes in. I, I love that. It kind of has this re- recurring thing. And again, like what you were saying, uh, uh, Scott, about like practice until it's not the idea of receiving news from the front from airwaves, like it, intangible information is flowing, but nothing happens. And then it happens and you're dealing with the dead and, and the, the, the suffering. And the newsreel talk about the miracle at Dunkirk and all the mm-hmm. lads brought home and, uh-huh. and getting the food on the train. But we've seen both sides of that yep. miracle now. And it's yeah. not so great. And then one more, one other moment. When McAvoy realizes he, he put the wrong letter in the envelope, that yell, like every every microsecond of that realization is so perfect like outstanding <laughs> the man's face is a symphony in that moment just bright I, I don't even know how he did it like i've never heard somebody yell like that in a movie like i've heard it in reality i've heard people talk like that uh uh, uh immediacy that 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 pat like fear motivated scream but that that was unparalleled so good mcavoy is like i mean and kira knightley also is freaking incredible in this like the way they play off each other like they they should have done a series like (laughs) gonna jump in just one more time sorry to keep (laughs) you know keeping another one thing going another one more zeke talk more (laughs) i'm working on it i'm trying um but one of the things that I had hinted at saying that I didn't say in the beginning, and Joel, you kind of uh, cued it up. But I, I, one thing I really liked is that it felt like um, everyone was the main character in a way, right? Like, I think one thing I really loved about this is that the character development and the attention to detail and the attention to dialogue and the shots made everyone feel like just as important. And I think part of that is to credit all of the great uh, actors and actresses in this. But I think it's also like very intentional um from the movie itself because i don't know right like you you start off and it's a briny movie right you're saying things through her perspective everything that happens comes back to her and then it's a robbie movie right when you're going to war and you're kind of centered on him for the longest time and then even in you know the third act when the interview starts like oh shit it's a briny movie right it's back to briny and all during that it's a, a c movie right you get plenty of good moments with her where it feels like she's the main draw and she's the main character i just really enjoyed how important it made every character feel uh, and how balanced it felt because I don't know. I think ultimately, right. It's a, it's a briny movie in the sense that she's telling the other folks story, but it's hard to say because everyone felt as important throughout. Definitely. That's well said Z because it really is a, you know, instead of hero and villain, it's more suited for the terms protagonist and antagonist here. And all our, our pair of Cecilia and Robbie and our Ryanie play those roles against each other constantly throughout the film you're right it's beautifully balanced we are a little short on time tonight though so we should probably move on now to joel's favorite segment and i'll put it right here it is it is time for <laughs> another situational movie recommendation. um so the the uninitiated side we we choose a uh um, recommendation prompt based on the movie that was chosen Often somebody who brings the movie brings it, but Tim refuses because he hates this segment. I'll never do it. <laughs> <laughs> Even if I have an idea, I still won't say it. 
<laughs> no, I'm kidding. If I had an idea, I would say it. It's not that I'm that much opposed to it. It's more just like the, I don't like doing homework for a podcast. I mean, I guess watching a movie doesn't count. I will watch a movie for a podcast. But don't make me think of something for a podcast. <laughs> Well, it's funny because this movie was your homework for six weeks, (laughs) literally. (laughs) I was going to ask Tyna, do you do you have one as as the the special guest on the hot seat? See, my knee jerk reaction is those are always the best movie movie with a great sex scene. Other than this, yeah, okay, this is why this is why I love you. (laughs) R rated. X-rated. That is such a good fucking question, and none of us has thought of it before. <laughs> this is where I put in the little like elevator music theme because we're all thinking. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm ready. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna ready. go. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna think some more. I'm gonna go with the quick one that first came to mind, though. We dunked on it earlier, so I got to come back to Titanic um, because I feel like the the handprints on the the car window. I feel like that's iconic, right? Maybe not the best, but I feel like for the '90s. And I don't know. I feel like that's an iconic sex scene in a movie. Such a weird lens to come well, through. <laughs> to dip into the podcast history, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah, it's that's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> we've all seen that one. That yeah, that that's an and it's like it wasn't necessarily the the hottest scene, if if you understand what I'm saying. But it was just it was beautiful and and perfect and what was true. It was desensationalized that that sex season. I, that was yeah, it's an excellent one. I was just because I'm, I'm at such a loss because most of what I watch recently are like Marvel films. When I have a chance to watch a movie, and it's like I'm, I'm trying to, I don't know that any of them have a sex scene in them. <laughs> the closest thing I can think of, the, I, I would say, I know it's technically not a movie, but the the last great sex scene I saw, oddly enough, is in the Iron Fist series. With him and Colleen Wing. Oh, oh interesting. That, that lived in my brain for a while. <laughs> Probably the best thing about that series. <laughs> I, don't rem- I don't recall that. So I blocked that series from my memory. <laughs> I don't like the one that's jumping to mind. I don't know if it's particular. Like the, the sex scene in Swim Fan. I don't know if anybody else saw that. Um, basically, like, it, I don't know. I can't speak to its quality. I've seen this scene. Take that how you want. Um, but, like, it's all about this guy who's an athlete. He's a swimmer. And this girl is, like, really obsessed with him and becomes, like, a stalker. And there's a moment where he's, like, dealing with something. And she, he's teaching her how to swim. I think she already knew how to swim. It's very manipulated. But there, it's, it's in the pool. And she's manipulating him and saying, tell me you love me. And he's like, what? And then she's like, you don't have to mean it. And then that twists the whole rest of the film into this like vendetta, this violent. I don't know if it's the most. It's I. I know it's not the most feminist film, but that that sex scene was just such an interesting psychological development that was going on. Is like he's getting what he wants because he wants to have sex and on the rebound, she's getting what she wants because she is manipulating him into to this. Well, you said you loved me, and then that reality is what she. So I don't know. Interesting dynamic it was in a pool. <laughs> it's like pool at night like it had kind of like a mystique i don't know why am i justifying it? it's not like it's the one that i keep thinking of i don't know i'm gonna go with uh black swan and not just because it's natalie portman portman and mila kunis i mean but that i mean that helps um i don't know i feel like that's a good one i think it, it is a good 
view of kind of their power struggle as well throughout the movie um, kind of comes at a pivotal time. Black Swan locked in answer number two. Joel, you made me think of my least favorite sex scene. Yes. It's cool. And it's uh-huh. showgirls. <laughs> when it's uh, her and... That's uh, my favorite. Never mind. She's fucking flopping around like a fish out of water. Like... Oh, God, do you remember seeing that on VH1 with like it the gave really me, it gave me a D-rection. <laughs> D-rection's a great term, Tim. That's phenomenal. I forget who Why? I stole that. I didn't invent, I think it was Barney on How I Met Your Mother. I think he's the one who said it. D-rection. Uh, my favorite other, you know, the way a film treats a sex scene is Pacific Rim. And you're all going to say to me, but Scott, there is no sex in Pacific Rim. I'm going to say, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> Two characters have an excellent friendship and partnership, and nobody crammed a romance in there. <laughs> the scene that does not exist is great. So I have two, because I like, I literally am like, what do I, what is my answer to this question? Because this is, this movie is the answer to the question. But I actually have two. One is the like in the parachute scene in um, Pearl Harbor, like where the parachutes are all hanging up. And so they're all like sexy and hanging in basically a parachute hammock. That is it. Plus Josh Hartnett, like, ugh. Um, but the second one is Disobedience, which I don't know if you all have seen that. It is uh, Rachel Weiss and Rachel McAdams. And they are, um, Rachel McAdams plays a woman who's ultimately about to leave her Orthodox Jewish community and Rachel Weiss has already left. And like, they were in love and like when they were younger before Rachel Weiss's character left. And it's just, it's like, I would say it's like a little bit less visceral than Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but there's like a real rawness. And it was really, I think such a, like hearing them learn, it was like a masterclass on like intimacy coordination and like it really being a communicative collaborative and like how would these characters interact so it's just it's gorgeous if you haven't seen it it's so good that, that made me think of um like again not a movie but the hannibal series because it was nbc and they i mean that that show is a testament to what you can get away with on cable television but like the the psychological there's so, several surreal hallucinatory sex scenes kind of kaleidoscoping and collaging into these kind of weird actual sexual but also psychological sexual manipulations and relationships between all of these characters and it like there's it's it's bloody orgy beautiful surrealist nonsense like it it was just like if you if you said to salvador dolly paint a sex scene it was that and it was it was fascinating I, i i thought it was just really effectively done great way to do tasteful and and intellectual sex um choreography blocking the way you i don't know it was just a mix of different uh directorial styling actually you made me think of another one that which is a good one this time before i give my final answer i think which will which will put put this to rest for everyone but uh um the in devil's advocate when keanu reeves is like you know he's it's kind of after, you know, they've been through all this stuff and him and his wife, Charlize Theron are like in the process of having sex. But at one point as she takes her shirt off, it ends up being this other woman from the office who he's kind of interested in. And, you know, as they're going through it, it kind of keeps blending back and forth between the two of them. And it's like, 
you know, when, when he sees it as that woman, he kind of just goes all in and they, they start getting dirtier. And then all of a sudden it pops back to Charlize Theron. And she's like, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You know, like, and so, you know, you, it's, it's kind of like the three of them in this really weird intermingling way, which is really cool. Uh, but I think my fest, my favorite sex scene of all time is in teen America world police. <laughs> <laughs> Just God. dolls <laughs> colliding roughly. <laughs> colliding roughly. Yeah. The name of my autobiography. <laughs> I was going to say that I'm going to raise you um, the mental sex scene that is in Demolition Man of how we have sex in the future. <laughs> oh, with the... <laughs> it's... Oh, oh Coneheads. The Conehead sex oh. scene. With the, the sensor discs, <laughs> and it's it's the, the daughter, and it's it's uh, um, uh, Chris, Farley. Chris Farley, like just <laughs> <laughs> that. That's mine. I, I, I rescind everything else. <laughs> I'm gonna throw in Deadpool since we're on a roll with the uh, like the holidays, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy International Women's Day. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the only mainstream pegging scene in cinema history <laughs> i know you didn't want to say it zeke i said it for you <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> and also not don't why did you do it <laughs> oh, thank you tyler that was a phenomenal question that really was. That was i can't believe we didn't think about that ever but yeah that was amazing thank you and thank you tim for bringing us to tournament excellent film and of course brought great i had one of those mind-blowing moments today where this is why i do this podcast it's great so thank you all so much and then thank you tina for joining us in the first place which we all very much appreciate you've been wonderful thank you for having me it's been really fun yeah i'd be very glad to have you all back before we move on to announcing what we're watching next month i want to shoehorn another movie in here um if you enjoy atonement you need to watch testament of youth you need mm. to go and watch this because it's true it is an almost perfectly accurate adaptation a couple of minor changes of the similarly named autobiography of vera Britton, a uh, feminist and pacifist from the time and in this case it's world war one not two but she has time at home and time in europe as a nurse and it's a lot of that same absolutely devastating tragedy of war as it just works its way through every character in the film, but it's it's real. So, you know, if you uh, if you enjoyed Atonement, I recommend it not just again as a good watch, but as a, a payment to history of sorts. Unfortunately, it looks like well, unfortunately, it looks like it's a stars film for streaming. I say unfortunately just because I know none of us has that already, <laughs> right? Not that stars is you know terrible or anything, uh, but yeah, it's it's out there. I highly recommend listeners too please uh, so that wraps up our episode today and that means our next movie selector is zeke zeke what will you be bringing us next month I need some help on this one um <laughs> got two ideas and so this is a a, a, a pattern <laughs> <laughs> every it? time it yes probably is. i'm very i have indecisive. the receipts i'm gonna put i know a you do cut. i don't i don't doubt that i know how indecisive i am <laughs> so don't doubt that um I have one that's been on the list for a while. I'm going to, because I can narrow it down to seven or I can narrow it down to two. So I'm going to narrow it down to two. Uh, got one that's been on the list for a while. Or do we want to get weird with it? Weird. Weird with it. Okay. And by, so 
we'll see how weird it is, but we're going to keep the uh, James McAvoy train rolling. Um, we're going to go with one I've not seen, hence the weird, like, could be bad. We're going to find out. Um, but have you all heard about My Son? Or have you seen My Son? No. No. So it just came out last year, and the only, basically, the only reason I want to watch, like, James McAvoy's great, but the main reason I want to watch it is because, the not the premise of the movie, but in the making of the movie, everyone is scripted except James McAvoy. James McAvoy's lines for the entire movie are improvised. Oh, my God. So they kind of shot everything <laughs> and, like, used just essentially the first take of James McAvoy uh, reacting to things. This could be terrible. <laughs> um, I did look at the Rotten Tomatoes scores, and that's why I was kind of like, I don't know. But um, let's roll with that. It's my son. I think it's on Peacock. Um, okay. Let's see what happens. I, just an interesting concept, I think. And I think the actual premise of the story uh, is that uh, his son, his and his wife's son, goes missing and it's like a mystery thriller thing i am just more here for just improvised <laughs> entire movie like let's see how that goes so this is unprecedented this is the that first pick great. in podcast history that none of us will have seen so that's mm. breaking records out here oh yeah documentary weird with it on two levels <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying yeah <laughs> cool well thanks for being open to just a maybe bad movie i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> Here to experience, man. Thank you so much, Zick. Be great. Thanks again, Tim, for atonement. Yeah. Thanks to all my usual crew for joining me, and a special thanks to Tina for lending her voice. Uh, listeners, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Did you know Movie Mumble has its very own Twitter account? Please follow us on Twitter at MovieMumbleNTG and tweet at us with questions, reviews, or recommendations of things you'd like us to watch next. 